The following is a production of Dirty Mo Media. Each man will ride alone, doing the thing he knows best, driving a precision racing machine to win. It's Dale Jr. back again for another episode of the Dale Jr. Download. And on this week's show, we got a great guest coming in. Joseph Newgarden is going to be our, our guest on the show. Joseph uh, is racing in IndyCar Series for Penske, Roger Penske. And um, we have that uh, race in Nashville coming up. I know. A lot, of, a, lot of, a lot of people curious about it. I am too. We've been promoting it on our on our the Xfinity and the Cup race. We, we promoted this race. We got Cheryl uh, Crow and... And uh, Mario Andretti in the promotion talking about this track and how they're going to race over this bridge. And we've been talking about it and talking about it. Well, he's going to tell us all about it. I can't wait to get him in here. Mike, you're here today. Good yeah, to man. See you. Feels like we, ha- we haven't done this in a long, long time. I mean, we only Why took one feel- week yeah, off. we took one yet, week off. Yeah, it feels like an eternity. It feels like we took the entire winter break. Did you uh, have a good off week? I did. Matthew's here. Leah's here. It's, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. I did. Um, I've been drinking beer. Good all right. You. Have you uh, been counting them? I have not been counting Got them. Got it. All right. I left here the other week, 173 pounds. Good for you. I ate reasonable meals, uh, three a day. Uh, I drank a pretty moderate amount of beer. Did not count them. I'm still the same weight I was last week. All and, right. And on vacation. And, that's, a, that's a big deal. Hey, yeah. I mean, usually when you're on vacation, oh, you get kind of lazy. Absolutely. You're not moving around as no. much. That's me. I just wanted you to know that I didn't just make this up. Like it's, I've tested it, and here it is another. St- here's another small sample size case a week of hanging out and just eating normally, and you know not eating crazy. You know, I'm, I I'm, I stick around probably 500 calories a meal. Yeah, wow. Yeah, boy. And so what's your total? What's your t- what's your daily? Well, I mean, well, about 1500. Well, no, 1500 plus. There's plus about a 300. Snacks. There's about 300 calories worth of snacks that I can that I can consume oh, at gotcha. any point in the day. Drink as much beer as I want. Same weight. How about that? So, are, are, you know, it's funny because we had this conversation. I got a on while the scale back. this morning. I was like, man, can't wait to see what this number is. Boom! 173.2. I can't wait to tell Mike. But I was on, I was out on my own family vacation yeah. and I, I wasn't quite aware of what videos and what, what segments we were putting out. And, and I find that our, our Twitter's blowing up, right? Whenever I got on it, and I realized they were blowing up because of this conversation, <laughs> this conversation about whether you count beer or not. I had no idea it was such a captivating topic, and yet it was. A lot of people got you know chimed in, uh, and now you are bringing it up because you feel vindicated that you just came back off a of vacation. It wor- is You're, working for me now. Yeah, 100%. I'm not saying it works for everybody. I don't know if it does or not. But Humor what me. was the uh, what was the general opinion? Oh, do you really have to ask? Oh, do you have to ask? Yeah. Well, sure Dale Jr. had a stance on something. What do you think the opinion was? I know what the gonna... popular opinion probably <laughs> yeah. was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you think? But did anybody make any sense of it? Uh, no. no, no, no. No attempts at logic. Yeah. Everybody said, no, you don't count your calories for beer because it's beer and you don't have to. Yeah. In other words, they're, oh, they're subscribing to your idea of you make it up as you go. <laughs> I think that me and Leah's point 
Oh, I, I don't know if I need to rope you. Do you want to be roped into this? <laughs> I can be roped into it because I was actually sitting here when Dale was talking. Isn't the whole point of all of this and the app you use called Lose It? Yes. Yes. But you're staying the same. Oh, well, I know. Uh, Ooh, so tough crowd over there <laughs> in the booth. That's not actually true. So, um, what do you mean? Well, He's lost weight. Yeah, I went from 188 to 173 in 80 days. How the hell? Hey, listen, I'm drinking, telling you, hey, I'm impressed. Eating and drinking beer. If you maintain your weight on a vacation, that is impressive. That is, impressive. Impressive. That yeah. is losing. Well, yeah, losing pounds. So this week, this week, I was probably a little more, uh, less strict about getting all the great information. You know, I typically, like if I ate a half of a Cuban sandwich, right, on a normal week, if I ate half of a Cuban sandwich, that's going to be about, you know, that's about 80% of my meal. So Cuban sandwich and some something else to go with it. Chips. I'm going to, typically on, if I, you know, like a week, like a normal week, I'm going to go, okay, this bread is this. I'm typing in every little item that's on the sandwich, right? Uh, on vacation, I'm like, Cuban sandwich. Uh, you know, they're, they're like, they give you like five different suggestions. Suggestions, yeah. and one's 500 calories, one's 400, and you're just like, ah, round it to the highest. <laughs> um, That's what I, I yeah. round it to the highest. I'm under this somewhere. Yeah. But, uh, anyways, I wasn't as strict as I usually am, but I was ba- very paying attention. I definitely don't want to make a mistake and regress, or it's very disappointing. Sometimes you do, though. You get on that scale, and it go- doesn't go the way you want. And uh, but you just gotta. Your body's weird, man. I will work really hard to try to lose a pound and gain two pounds and not know why, and then not you know. And then the next week that you know I lose that weight with a little less effort. It just doesn't make any sense. But you you know you just gotta stick with it. It's not a it's not a one you know losing weight isn't a one or a week or a month plan. It's like I've been at this for eighty days to lose ten pounds mm. or fifteen pounds. So hey, do you drink sodas? I don't. Okay. So, I will, but when I'm when I'm trying to cut weight, no. What's I mean, worse for drink. you, sodas or beer? I mean, I'm asking because I've always wondered that. I think that it's... sodas. Well, sodas have 200 some calories in a in a in a regular bottle of soda. That's about anywhere. Well, Pepsi has about 150. Any other soda is going to have over 200 calories, plus you know, all the sugar. Yeah, that's yeah. the biggest. A lot of sugar. That's the biggest thing. I had a trainer once tell me that he'd rather us go out. And drink a ton of beer at night than yeah. a ton of soda. Well, <laughs> all right, I like I'll that guy. Do what the people say. Um, but when I'm get to, I'm pretty much almost to the weight I want to get to, or what I want to be. I have some. I have a soda. Yeah. At that point, you know, I'll just kind of have to watch it. You know who's also on lose it? Who? I have deep information. Who? I have deep background information. Yes, sir. Matthew Dillner is now. On when lose did it. he get on there? I had it like eight years ago, buddy, but when you guys started talking about it, I'm like, Fire and I was bored up. in the airport, and I fired it up, and I've been, it's only three days now, but That's I got to right. lose weight. Pandemic weight hit me bad, dude. I'm a fat Well, ass. good luck. Um, we don't, you know, the this app, we don't have any affiliation with them, but uh, I, I think it'll, it works for right. me. It's very helpful. He came to give me a brownie yesterday, and that was so unusual. I felt like, what's going on here? He's giving me a brownie, yeah. and then he said... Well, I'm on lose it, and, and I didn't want to count. A and he didn't want to. <laughs> he didn't want the brownie. <laughs> and so I. Uh, that's how I found out. There yeah. you go. Well, that's good. one way. Like if I have if if like I, if it's in my house, like it's calling my name. Like yeah. I cannot have even. When, I'm not. I'm not strict enough to to wait. When we have, I have to 
get rid of that bad food. What is your vice? Like, what's the food <clears throat> vice? I mean, the one thing that you, if it's in the house, you're going to eat it, and, oh, and there's nothing oh. you can do to stay away from it. I, there's a, there's everything's on the list. Everything? Yeah. I mean, if it's in the house, I'm going to go over there, and at some point in the week, I mean, there's there's nothing that. But you don't have like a bare cupboard. Like, what's the one thing that you cannot freaking resist? I don't have any freaking willpower. Do you not understand what I'm trying to say? Like, if it's in the cupboard and it's not good for me, I'm going to eat it at some point. I get you. Yeah, it's not like one thing. Um, you know, not that these things are all bad, but like, if there's beef jerky in there, I'm going to eat it. It's gonna. Uh, if there's candy in the in the refrigerator, we like to keep our candy cool. If there's candy in the fridge. If there's uh, ice cream, cool. Okay. I, Amy don't tell me when she buys it, and I'll go open the fridge, and poof, there's some ice cream. Well, I got to eat that. I can't sit in there. My <laughs> wife hides food. And I will, you know what I do? I'm sorry, Mike. I, no, 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 really? no. I, I get the ice cream, and I open it up, and I scrape across the top of it and just eat it in tiny little, like scrape the sc- spoon and try like to eat just a minimalist amount. <laughs> For yourself or because you don't want it to look like you've been? No, for myself. You're trying. Okay, you're not trying to hide it from Amy. I'm trying not to go. You know, I'm not. Oh darn! There goes the whole pint. You can eat Uh, ice cream fast. I know. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It goes. You got to go slow Mm -hmm. with that ice cream, or it'll be gone. And then next thing you know, you went over your 300 snack calories you got for the day. Oh yeah, like with one (laughs) scrape. (laughs) One scrape. Yeah. One scrape would be a hundred. Yeah. I'm, I don't know, man. I, I I feel like you know talking calories is probably not. <laughs> I don't know, man. Not gonna really sell a lot of podcasts. Our director uh, of TikTok over yeah. here, our new director of TikTok, uh, put that those, video and it got a million. It's po- always those one, things. One point three million views. And going back to people wanting to know what people said, uh, I think there was. 1,200 comments on TikTok. I've read them all. What'd they say? Uh, beer calories don't oh, count. Okay. I counted mine. So, yeah. Hey, Leah. Yeah. I'm asking you this question and nobody else. Oh, gosh. If Dale would have taken the opposite position and said, you, of course you've got to count your beer calories. And I'm saying, why would you count your beer calories? My diet, my rules. What would those 1,200 calories, uh, <laughs> well, 1,200 comments I don't think say? we would have got 1,200 comments. Yeah, right. <laughs> they would have been like, yeah, just <laughs> like move this on. guy's crazy. Move on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. All right. Well, good stuff. Yeah. So vacation, any other stories from vacation? Um, no, me and my wife were talking the other day, and uh, I didn't know if this was worthy of the conversation, but um, we had I threw a couple ideas on the table, and one of them, I can't remember what the other one was, but one of them was um, when we became parents, okay? So when you become a parent, and we got a few in here, you, you use these new words uh, when you're talking to your child about potty, TT. Oh yeah, you don't use your the word you've been nope. you know went to college yeah. with. You went, you, you're yeah. using a, a, yeah. a soft and tone a, down. I'm gonna yeah. take a leak. You don't do that anymore. You start using new words, right? Right. But what's TT? TT is to go use the bathroom. Okay. Number one. Urinate. Okay. Yeah. No. no. Didn't know. Don't use that. What do you use with your son? Gotta go pee. Pee. Or gotta go potty. 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 Potty's, Potty's a new one. Yeah. You probably didn't use that one with your No, pals. I'm not going to the bar and saying, hey, guys, I'm going to go potty. <laughs> so that begs the question. That, that begs the question. Have you ever been in an adult conversation and accidentally used one of your kid words? Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Is that weird? <laughs> oh, yeah. I did that the other day. I oh, said, really? Yes. 
I used TT. To who? No. Adam was around some buddies. <laughs> and you said, I got to go TT? Yes. <laughs> I gotta go TT all this beer out. <laughs> I gotta go TT. Did they How say? How drunk were did they you? They say, "Oh, you're a big boy now." <laughs> like Dale Junior went to the potty listen by to himself. My, listen to Mister Perfect. Did Surely. you shake off your pee pee afterwards? <laughs> oh gosh, he's having fun with this. So, at risk of exposing myself, I know everyone else in here Not has literally. probably made the same mistake. Oh yeah, I have. Not the exact same mistake I did. I maybe went took it to an extreme, but. I mean, I'm I'm with my kids so much, and we're using these words, and there's I don't know, there's probably half a dozen, maybe there's even more than I realize that I'm you know that we use kid words now for things, and uh, it's even like you know st- not just not just bathroom related things, just everyday things like like snacks and and whatever, right? You, yeah, you've got little names for everything, right? Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think a couple here. I've been. Like almost slipping up in, a, in a adult public conversations and using these words that I use with my kids. That is awkward, but it, you know it depends on what kind of friends you got. If you got friends that'll laugh it off with they you, laugh, but like, they knew. What, what they, if they, you're in like a business meeting yeah. and I'm like, I gotta go poopy. I'll luckily, be right back. <laughs> luckily, that has not happened. <laughs> but I was just wondering if I was alone. No, no, you're not alone. Uh, what are some of the words like tinkle? I, you use tinkle? Ke- you know, Kelly uses that word all the time. Oh, really? I, I think that's an adult word in Kelly's house. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's, there, there's, little, there's little words that our daughters mispronounced early on, and they were so cute that we continue to use them even though they don't. Like, my uh, oldest daughter, when she was really young, she used to call toenails ponails. Uh-huh. And today, we still call them ponails. That's cute. You know, she could paint her ponails. Um, you know, there's little words like that. That's not exactly applying to what you're saying, but I, I do think that you end up uh, creating new oh, words. Yeah. Have you ever done this? Have you ever, like, when you are on the phone with Amy and you're wrapping it up, what do you say before you say goodbye to Amy? Do you ever say, I love you? Oh, yeah. Every time? I think you have to right. end every conversation. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it becomes so such part of a muscle memory that you say, I love you, right? <gasps> oh, yeah. Ah! Uh, yes. Have you ever said I love you to somebody else because yes. you're like either distracted and you're just trying to wrap up the call in your mind somewhere else and you just heard it blur out? All right, love you. Yes. And it's like, God, yes. not my wife. That <laughs> <laughs> was Micah. Thank gummit. <laughs> Has that I, ever happened to anybody? I, yeah, yes. something similar. Yeah. Didn't I do this to Yulia one time? Oh like my did. gosh. I feel like you did. Now that you say that. Wow. All right, Leah, love you. Bye. <laughs> oh, hey, awkward. I, <laughs> you, you know what's even worse? Like, like people have different words for things, right? Yeah. I once had an ex-girlfriend. Her mom, you know, they're Italian. She's cooking pasta, you know, in the kitchen. And all of a sudden, she just went, oh, I pooped. And I'm like, on this this girl sitting on my lap, and I'm going, oh, my God, her mother just crapped her pants. This is And why is she still cooking sauce? Your ex-girlfriend was sitting on your lap while your mother, your mo- her yeah. mother was cooking pasta? Yeah, well, yeah, but anyway. That's, that, but, there's but, nothing but, more awkward hey, than that. That's not, like, the, the point. She said she pooped. And I thought she meant, holy, I was like terrified. I'm like, she shit sh- her pants. But that's she, they use the word for like a fart. Poop. Poop. And I'm like, that is weird. Not, yeah. I pooped. You, you, you say that? No. Okay, good. Yeah. That's I think psychotic. That's, well. Um, Were there other chairs around and she still preferred to sit on your lap? Or is there like no seating? I, th- I can't get past this. She was affectionate. She's Italian. 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 Slightly mm-hmm. Italian. 
All right. Very nice. All right. Man, that was a, a, an addition that I didn't see coming. <laughs> Sorry. Or you slipped the – no, not, not – well, that was <laughs> yeah. a nice one. But. All, all, all of Matthew's women in his life uh, uh, sitting on his lap. <laughs> he calls his mother-in-law psychotic. <laughs> yeah, he calls his mother-in-law. Right. No, no, not mother-in-law. <laughs> no, this was an ex. Oh, this is uh, an ex. This is an ex. Well, then, yeah, I guess you can get I away can with that. I can call her. Yeah, you can get away with that. <laughs> She's not. But What were you talking about, though? Yeah, go ahead. What you did. Like, yes, I love you. Yeah, <laughs> dude, I'm surprised I haven't said it to you. Yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> oh if if you're on the phone with somebody enough, and you're just like, you know, your kind of mind has now like moved on to something else, and you're like, all right, and you're trying to go, dude, it it can happen. But you don't say it to your friends on purpose, and, like guy friends and stuff. And like I'll say it sometimes. Love you, man. There's a moment where when know, that kind of might be. Yeah, there's a moment when that's certainly appropriate, and you know, depending on the conversation. You might be trying to console somebody that's going through something difficult or whatever. But, uh, yeah, I think if Mike accidentally slipped up and said it to me, <laughs> I would probably say it back. <laughs> I love you too, Mike. Coming. I love you too, buddy. I would. Yeah. Because uh, we're, we're, we're very close. <laughs> <laughs> then you wouldn't feel so weird. Uh, no, then you know what would happen? We would text each other and I'm like, hey, man, uh, I didn't mean to say that. After. <laughs> then I would have had my feelings hurt. I mean, what do you mean you didn't mean it? You're taking it back? You can't take that back. Can you take back an I love you if it <laughs> no. was not if it was not originated for that person? Nope. No. What about, no, you can't take it nope. back. I mean, if it was somebody random, but if it was like Dale, you can't take that back. Yeah. yeah. What if you say it to your, yeah. Oh man, yeah. Yep. Well, I just just for the record, I love everybody in here. <laughs> I love so you if too, Dale. I do Dale. say it. I mean it. All right, it's not a slip up. Got Mike, it. Mike may be uh, slipping up. Me? You mean it? I mean it. <laughs> There's actual love coming. <laughs> up. All right. Good to know. Yeah. If you've ever been in the market for a new home, you know home shopping can be a lot. There's so much you don't know and so much you need to know. What are the neighborhoods like? What are the schools like? Who is the agent who knows the listing or the neighborhood best? And why can't all this information just be in one place? Dalton, this probably sounds real familiar to you. It does. I just bought a house last year. and You know, you asked, uh, why can't all this information be in one place? Well, now it is. On Homes.com, they've got everything you need to know about the listing itself, but even better. They've got comprehensive neighborhood guides and detailed reports about local schools. And their agent directory helps you see the agent's current listings and sales history. Homes.com collaboration tools make it easier than ever to share all this information with your family. It's a whole cul-de-sac of home shopping information all at your fingertips. Homes.com. We've done your homework. All right, guys. Let's bring Joseph Newgarden into the studio. Make yourself at home. Hopefully, it's right in time with my five-hour energy I had earlier. <laughs> oh, I love so, this. Yeah. You like it? Yeah. 
Yeah, so this is we used to podcast in this little space right here. And okay. This where we're sitting used to be a souvenir shop. We still have a little souvenir shop over here, but when I retired, we sold half the souvenirs. So we had to, we had this space to use. So yep. We turned it into a uh, we turned it into a nice cool studio. We're glad you're here, and I'm glad you brought Hovis. Uh, me too. Hovis is one of my favorites. Yeah. So I I have not. We could do an entire podcast on. Hovis. He said not to believe <laughs> yeah. anything you said about well, him. Well, that's because it's all it's believable. A, hey, Hovis is one of the original Junior Motorsports employees, as a matter of yes. fact. So yeah. Hovis, is he really? Yeah. How long ago was that? Yeah, a lifetime. Yeah, Hovis works with Penske. I, you know, kind of gets you where you need to be, and and he's the one that helped us sort of set up this this podcast. But I'm so nervous. I feel like I'm here. I'm like talking to the president or something. Shoot. I don't know well, why. Mike's Mike's just a normal guy. You'll get used to it after a few, <laughs> a few more minutes. Yeah, You'll realize no. very just intimidating. Like the, he's yeah. like the rest of us. Yeah. Well, no, this is uh we we've wanted you in here for a long time, so I don't want to add pressure to you, but yeah. uh, this is exciting to have you here, man. Yeah. We do you? I don't know where y'all met. I remember when we first saw Joseph, and that was at the Kentucky Derby. Yes, yep. that was the first time I think we met. Is that yep. right? Yep. I think I we I got to interview you. You did. You interview. Yeah. I don't. I don't. It was kind of a blur sort of, the whole thing. Yeah, to be yeah, right. You were way busier than me. That day, rightfully so. That day was bonkers. I think I actually partied a little bit with my wife, uh, which I don't do very often. But we had a blast. Yeah. And um, y'all looked like y'all had a great time. It was so much fun. You know, it's like going to the. It's, you know, like the Daytona 500 or the Indianapolis 500, it's one of those things you got to go see at yep. some point. So it was a really good excuse. Yeah. So that was fun. So ever since then, I've kind of been watching you and keeping my eye on you. But you're from Nashville, okay? Yes, sir. Born and raised in Nashville. Not right? really. Born, no? and, born and raised, literally. Where, well, where is your family from? Um, so my mother is Danish. A lot of people don't know that because everyone just thinks I'm full American. I'm actually ha- half Danish. My dad's from New York. Mostly grew up in, in Miami, though. My family migrated to Nashville uh, with the family business. What so, is the family business? So my grandfather, he had a photography company. They used to take you know school photos of, of kids all over the country, and then they based out of Nashville in the 80s. And so that's when my parents went up to Nashville. And then I was born in 1990, so I was born and raised there with my sisters and lived there until I was about 18 before I you know, left the country to go racing in Europe. What were your early memories of racing? Like why? So everybody's going to want to know like how you didn't end up becoming a stock car driver. You're in Nashville from Tennessee. All those things seem to point you in that direction, but you went overseas. So go back even before that. What was the first time you saw a race car of any kind and went, that's neat? Oh, it, I mean, probably when I was three, years old. So I grew up watching racing on TV. That's how I was like that was it. acclimated Your to it. Your family had no It's really my history? dad. No no racing history. It's really my dad. Um, my grandfather was a big car guy too. So cars were always big in my family. Uh, my, my grandfather probably had 100 cars at one point wow. in Whoa. his collection total. You know, big Chevy guy, had all sorts of Corvettes um, and just all sorts of cars. Uh, but r- really, I don't, I don't think he was the racing fan of the family. It was really my dad. My dad was the one that like pioneered liking racing, um, and he'd watch everything. He watched NASCAR, IndyCar, especially growing up in Miami. You know, when IndyCar was really big back mm-hmm. in the early '80s, he would watch street course races there. He'd watch Formula One on TV. So when I was growing up, it was really my dad that was watching racing, and I I would watch it and be like, well, that's pretty cool. And I yeah. I always loved anything motorsports related, anything that you know, had an engine. I wanted a go-kart since I was two years old and, uh, I wasn't able to get one. My parents were really risk averse, which is kind of funny. Like they, my dad didn't want me to get into racing or do anything dangerous. Um, so he was really, uh, he pushed me more to play stick and ball sports. I played baseball, basketball growing up, but my love for racing came on TV. That's, that's where I kind of 
grew up liking it. And I'd go with my dad to the track every now and then. Um, so there is racing love in my family, but there's no, you Got know, there's it. no yeah. anchor where it was like, hey, we went to the tracks every weekend mm -hmm. and I grew up at the tracks. Like that's, that wasn't my history. It was more watching it on TV. So how did you get behind the wheel of your first race car? Like how did that happen? I, I have a really, I have probably an unorthodox story with motorsports. Um, so like I said, when I was younger, I always wanted to go kart. Ever since I was, you know, probably three years old, I wanted to go kart. Um, my parents were super against anything risky. I mean, it was hard getting a bicycle growing up just because they didn't want me to get hurt. Um, so, you know, if you, I grew up in Hendersonville, Tennessee, which is, you know, not necessarily the, the racing capital of the world. Um, it's hilarious, actually, because Josh yes. Berry, we went to school together. Wow. Literally, what? Josh was in my seventh, eighth grade class. Are you serious? And we weren't even, I, I, I can't say, uh, hey, we were friends or anything, but like, I remember Josh. Wow. And <laughs> I wasn't racing at this point. I was probably 11, 12, you know, in seventh, eighth grade. And I just think it's hilarious now because I see right. what Josh is doing. I didn't even know Josh was racing or that he was a race guy. And it's probably four or five years ago, I started noticing like, I was like, oh, Josh Berry. I know Josh Berry. He was in my class. <laughs> oh my gosh! And then I I learned about his story. Like I had no idea that he moved over here and yeah. like you know he started working in the shop here and got to know you. Or I think he got to know you on iRacing, yeah. right? Then he came, moved over here. Like I know the story, and I'm like that is the coolest damn thing ever. Yeah. So I messaged him like four or five years ago, and I was like, hey, like I know we weren't friends or anything, but like I think it's so cool what you're doing, and just to see, I, he's got a way cooler story than me, <laughs> just because the way he had to work his way up yeah. right and now he's got the ride and everything and and you're doing so much to help him and he's worked for it i just love those stories yeah. so it's kind of a I, it's I a weird world that, he, that we grew up together i think this sort of does make hendersonville the cap the the, the racing capital because they you guys are born two months apart you and josh berry two professional race car drivers out of hendersonville tennessee from the same uh, class uh, in middle school <laughs> from the same class in middle what class was it uh i mean we probably i think we shared a bunch of classes i i, I remember I remember science class together for sure. Yeah, and probably. Neither uh, one of y'all probably paying much attention. No, pro probably not. I, I just wish I could go back in time, you know, because I'm sure Josh was probably watching racing and like drawing cars in his book or something yeah. like. I had no idea that. <laughs> no, that's what you were doing yeah. in science class. <laughs> yeah. I was definitely drawing cars every class. Is there when when is the moment where you're sitting there going, man, I really want to try this? Here's how badly I wanted to do anything racing related was so Hendersonville, Tennessee. Not a big racing place, right? I grew up playing baseball, basketball uh, since I was little, like three, four years old. Um, so I knew sports. I loved competition. I didn't realize how much I loved competition at that age, but I knew I wanted to tinker with something um, engine-related or, or just, you know, motorsport-related. I was like, just give me something I can drive. I want to do that. So I used to get my hair cut in this, like, strip mall area by this, you know, old-school barber. His name was Rudy. Cut my dad's hair, cut my grandfather's hair for, like, 30 years, like, you know, it's the, you know, hometown barber. And next to the barber shop, one year opens up a skate shop and they start selling skateboards. And, you know, obviously I'm a young kid. I don't really, I'm not doing much in Hendersonville, Tennessee. So I'm interested in a skateboard shop. And then I see in the window, they start selling these motorized scooters. Mm. I'm like, well, you know, my parents won't let me get a go-kart. Maybe, uh, maybe I can convince them to get me this motorized scooter. That's got an engine on it. Like I could do something <laughs> with that. And so I think I, I convinced my mom for my for my birthday, I really want that motorized scooter. Can you please give that to me? Um, and I got that for my birthday one year. Really? I think I was 12 years old. I got this motorized scooter, and I lived in a neighborhood in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And I literally convinced everyone in my neighborhood, all my pals, because that's what we did. You know, all summer long we'd hang out and terrorize the neighborhood. I convinced 
all my friends that get motorized scooters too. And so we had like six of these things and we would race around the neighborhood, like (laughs) totally annoying the heck out of the neighbors. Right. And, and I would go back, I'd I'd have it in the garage. I'd take the engine apart a million times, put it back together. I I loved it. And then I figured out, I loved this so much. And this was my my only like window into racing was this motorized scooter. So I'm going to race this motorized scooter. I literally looked up online that back in 2001, there was sanctioned international scooter racing. <laughs> I swear, this is a real story. This is how I started motorsports. This is the weirdest thing ever. And I convinced my dad to take me across the country to race scooters. What does that uh, conversation start like? It's just, I mean, he knew. He's like, man, this kid really likes scooters and racing. And he liked racing, too, so it's not like he didn't get yeah. it. But it was almost so silly. It was like, Dad, if I, I'm literally asking you to take me to go race scooters in Las Vegas. Like, why can't we just get into go-karting? But anyways, we ended up doing that for like a year, and I raced these scooters in like the world championships of scooter racing. You were that good. And I won. I won won. some events. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. So it got so stupid that it was like... Hold up. What's scooter racing like? Tell us how... Tell us how... What's the etiquette? Is there... It's like a cross between BMX racing and motocross, but on pavement. Like, they, they literally set up ramps. They set up obstacle courses. or Not obstacle courses. They set up... Um, How many are you competing against at once? Yeah, probably about 20 people in a Got class. Yeah. And there's multiple classes, right? It's just like racing. You'll have... Is it set up in a parking lot, kind of like they do a lot of the cart stuff in Vegas? <laughs> yeah. yeah, you go yeah. to a casino. Yeah. They set it up. They cone it off. Yep. How fast would they go? I mean, the, the souped-up ones do, like, 35, 40 mile yeah. an hour on a scooter. Yeah. You know? It's like, what are we doing? Insane. <laughs> Yeah, um, but all these, you know, these these industries they form with just passion. You yeah. know, pe- like people were passionate about racing scooters, yep. and you'd have like, you know, the hot shoes coming in with trailers. You know, we we'd roll up in the back of our truck with <laughs> with our scooters, but you'd have people with like semi trucks, just like racing. You'd have like you want to beat these guys; these are the best of the West. Yeah, it's so silly. Um, <laughs> so we did that for like a year, and I think my dad was like, "All right." Let's go figure out how to get into racing. And I wanted to race go-karts. That was what was interesting to me. It's kind of what you know caught my eye. So eventually we got into that, and that's kind of how the, the story for racing starts. Yeah. And so your first go-kart, what, what kind of go-kart was it? For most people that probably don't know about karting, because a lot of people, I think, you know, typically they'll think of like going on vacation and seeing like a rental kart track or something right. like yeah. that. That's not the type no. of karting we're talking We're yeah. talking about real kart yeah. racing. What like, was your chassis? Oh, man, it was it was an American Eagle, I think is right. what it was called. It was like a one-off chassis. So Mark Dismore, who's an ex-IndyCar driver, um, started this this uh, this new go kart track in Indianapolis. Okay, um, you went. You're still living in Nashville. Still living in Nashville. And you're decide, You're you're gonna race in Indy. So this was really my dad. My dad goes, all right, you want to go racing? Let's figure out how we start this, right? You want to go go karting? And he did all this research. He saw there was a new track being formed in Newcastle. Uh, Indiana, which is about 35 minutes east of the city. And he said, this is a new facility. It's built by an ex-IndyCar driver. Uh, they have the largest cart distribution center in, in North America. Like They're literally the largest part supplier for go-karts in North America. Their company was called Comet Cart Sales. And he's like, let's go up here. We're going to meet these guys. They'll teach us how to race go-karts, and we'll figure this out. 300 miles to go to right. Indianapolis from Nashville, just up there, and then 300 miles back home. Uh, so my dad's a wild man. He's like, let's go do this. We, we met Mark. We met all these people. They, they sold us a, a go-kart. It was literally a one-off cart. I think it was called like an American Eagle yeah. or something. Um, sold us a Yamaha chassis or a, sorry, a Yamaha engine. And we bought the cart. We took it back home and started tinkering with it a little bit. And then that, that cart track officially opened. They were still building the track when we first went up there. Officially opened. And we're like, all right, let's go race. Let's figure out how to your race first, in their events. Your first cart race up there. Mm-hmm. And how old are you? 13 years old. 
And how do you know how to work on carts to make them go fast? You don't. I mean, you his, literally show his up. Scooter skills. Here's working I, on I mean, scooters. <laughs> yeah, it's all I mean, scooters, really. At the I end mean, of the day, it's taught me everything <laughs> I know. It's the foundation of my success. You is scooters. still apply scooter logic to well, your cars you today? Well, you could. <laughs> I mean, you could to a go kart. That's similar. The go kart engine and the scooter engine got to be pretty similar. Yeah, they are similar. I mean, it's <laughs> the scooter engine is kind of funny. They're like little weed whacker engines, yeah. you know, like it <laughs> literally. Literally like from a lawnmower. Um, but there is similar logic. You know, if yeah. you want to take the thing apart and like, you yeah. know, put a new piston in or like, you know, change the carburetors on it. It's similar to carting. I mean, Dale's right yeah. for sure. We're going straight to the scooter shop after this, aren't we, Dale? <laughs> this, we're doing that. No. This There's going to be an race. influx in scooter racing after this. I, I've not told this story very often, but it's like the real why? story. Well, why wouldn't you tell This is a fascinating story. You know what the irony is? The irony is that your parents wouldn't let you get a bicycle because that's not safe. But the next thing you're doing is you got a Hemi and a scooter, basically. And you're Isn't going hilarious? You know, for, yeah, 40 miles an hour and winning. I think they created more of a problem. Like, you know, you hold someone back and they're like, they just want it so much more because oh, you're, you're holding them you're, back. You're rebelling a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Yeah, I hear you. You go up to Indy to race this new track. Is that the, I mean, do you just race there for a while, spe specifically at that track? Or yeah, so when I started, kind of the easiest thing to do instead of trying to, you know, in go-karting, the big stuff is national racing, right? And people, they'll travel, you know, all over the place, right? East Coast, West Coast, Florida, one weekend, you know, Chicago the next, North Carolina. That's a lot more expensive because you're traveling all over the place. Well, this this new track, uh, Newcastle Motorsports Park, it, it was going to create... Um, a destination for people of all, all of the Midwest to come to one location to race in this regional championship. It was the Kart Racers of America championship. So I, to be economical about it, it was like, let's just race in this championship. We'll only come here. We can keep our go-karts here. They had garages built. It's much like GoPro Motor, Motorplex, yeah. you know? Mm. Um, very, very similar, but 15, 20 years earlier. Um, so it was like, this is going to be the most economical thing. We'll just race in this one championship, not try and do this national stuff. So I did that for about two and a half years before I got into car racing. And that was really my, that was my introduction into racing, you know, learning everything about racecraft, you know, how you work on a cart, how you work with the team, how you work with the mechanic, um, just, you know, how, how you be a race car driver. That's, that's the foundation right there. Yeah. What are some of the things that you would have done differently, I guess, you know, because you... Uh, let me, this is a terrible analogy, but it's, it's the only one I can think of right now. But like when I got into cycling, right, um, you're getting into racing at 13, you know, go-karting at 13 years old. That's pretty normal. I mean, when I started racing go-karts, I was 14, 15. Okay, know? yeah. I wasn't really, like kids today, it's ridiculous. It's nuts, it's, right? It's ridiculous. Four or five, so five years, years old. Five years old, it just doesn't make any sense at all. When I got into Biking, which you probably ride bikes, right? Road bikes? A, a little bit. I, I'm not a roadie like All most right. guys. Well, I do, and I went head first. Made oh, no. tons of mistakes, right? All kind, bought all kinds of unnecessary things and ended up having to turn around and sell on eBay. So <laughs> give me some, some – I got – you know, we're going to pretend we got a 13-year-old standing right here. What are you going to tell his dad on some of the advice, missteps, things you would have done differently? You know what? It's It's – I'd like to say we'd do something different, but I don't think we would. Yeah. Because that's how you learn, right? Yeah. You know, and that's that's been the story of my whole career, and you, you really learn that in racing, that if you don't make the mistakes, it's hard to kind of figure out what you're supposed to do. What was the hardest thing for you to realize in racing? You know, that it's not fair. It's not a fair sport, and that's okay. Yeah. You know, you keep going. I, that's I, I, I got so mad at certain points because I didn't think things were fair, and that's in different ways, right? Whether it's who gets the opportunity or, 
you know, the way the, the cars are built or the way they're set up, or the racing style of certain races, oh, that's not fair, the way that they, they race because the fastest guy doesn't win. There's a lot of things in racing that you might not think are, are fair, but it, you've you got to work through them. I think it's all, it's, racing is all problem solving, okay? And the more that you make that excuse that it's not fair, et cetera, it's, you're not getting the point. It's figuring out the problem, whether that's figuring out the problem of how you get in the car or it's figuring out the problem of how you win this race around, you know, the people that you're racing against. So that's what I've had to probably learn. It's what I've gotten better at is, you know, being calm and the way that I look at racing and knowing that, yeah, it's not a fair sport half the time, but that's, that's really the challenge of what motorsports is. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a great point. When I see, um, you know, my sister got her little kids, her little girls and her son into the, the karting stuff going on around here, dirt tracks and all that. And there's a lot of young kids, Brexton Bush, Kyle's son. And I think it's a great platform like any, at any age probably was for you too at 13. But when you start out, that's what it should be about. I think is molding that person you know that you know that impressionable child mold helping them understand how to lose yeah. how to accept getting beat man you got outrun today you know and we're not going to pitch a fit you know we're going to go over there and we're going to congratulate the winner and we're going to come back next week and we're going to have fun again you know yeah. i watch these parents today cuz i know i may go through that one day i might i don't know what my girls are going to want to do and i'm trying to i guess learn through kelly's through all the kids that i go and watch them race and your experience trying to learn how to not turn into that sort of super competitive dad right and just and it be about wins and losses right it should be more about trying to help them turn into into you know good individuals like good people was your dad cognizant of that when he's taking you to the racetrack is was he super you know competitive about you know y'all's racing uh, or was he helping you sort of grow as an individual how was that going i mean my dad was my secret weapon like in my whole career uh, my career would never happen or have happened without my father, and for multiple reasons. Um, and that's a good example of it, is that my dad, he was the perfect temperament for, you know, how do you interact with your child at the track, and how do you bring him up? You know, what kind of example do you lead? Explain and, explain that a little bit on some things he did. He's a, he's a pretty competitive person. I'd say I'm probably more competitive now, but he's the eternal optimist, and that's his strength, is that, you know, there was no challenge that was too big for my father. And he instilled that into me when I was young. You know, we, we're going to, we can figure out anything. You can do anything. And it wasn't like this happy-go-lucky type of deal. It was, it was a determined optimism where it's like, you know, whatever challenges are in front of us, like we, we can make it happen. And he, and he believed in me probably before I believed in myself that I could become a professional race car driver. It's a little bit cheesy, but he's just, he had that right temperament where, you know, he, w- he was intense in some ways. Uh, he wanted me to, you know, he really wanted me to learn. He wanted me to have the best environment possible. But he was also really hands-off a lot of the times. He let me make my own mistakes. And I was pretty, you know, clear with him in the beginning that that's how I wanted it. I really did as a kid. I wanted to, I wanted to learn and make the mistakes myself. You know, I, if there was a mechanic that I was working with, I didn't want my dad to work with the mechanic. I, let me work with the mechanic. Let me understand how we're supposed to interact and, you know, get a flow together. And those are little things that you don't really even think about when you're, when you're young. You know, I think if you're a parent, you just want, just give my kid the best. Let me protect him. Let me, let me be the hand that's over him, making sure he's got everything right at the right moment. And he did that to some degree, but was also completely hands off and letting me, you know, take care of things. So he was not this overbearing, you know, figure. If I lost, yeah, of course, you know, it's disappointing for him, but he didn't display it as in that's unacceptable or this is disappointing. It was, 
well, let's let's you know focus on why we lost and and let's let's make it right and win the next race. And that's how it was. So yeah. he was the real he was the perfect temperament, I think, as a, as a parent. And his optimism and his attitude not only helped shape me and who I am and how I interacted the track with the people around me, but he he was also the person that just kept carrying the torch and like getting us up the road. I mean, I would never have made it up these steps. And you guys know how this is. There's a lot of steps you got to work to get to the top of the mountain. And then when you get to the top of the mountain, it's like you start all over again, right? Because it's a new mountain at the top. Um, but I would never have made it up those steps without without my dad and his determination. So when you're trying to compete in the go-karts, I'm, I remember going to my first race and remember my first accident. It was spectacular. Um <laughs> And it was it was it was a wild experience. So you you know, and you mentioned how your parents were were uber, you know, worried about your you know your safety growing up as a kid and didn't you know wanted to try to protect you at all times. So you have your what's your first big crash? What is that experience like with your dad? And what was your thought process going through that? Because that's like the first test, right? Mm-hmm. Is how you react to not only getting outran or, or being not being not being the best in that moment, but that big moment where you crash and th- yeah. that you get that real fear. So for me, it was really the first uh, car race that I did. It wasn't in go-karts. You know, go-karts was kind of its own category. Um, and, you know, we had some wrecks in that. But, you know, if you take go-karting out of it, we did that two and a half years. And then when I was 15, 16, I started getting into car racing. What kind of cars? Skip Barber is where we went. Okay. It was the most economical yeah. thing. Skip Barber Racing, back in 2006, they still had the national championship, regional championships, and it just made a lot of sense from an economic standpoint. That was the easiest transition. It was the cheapest transition yeah. to get into formula cars. Um, so I, I went down. I got taught how to drive an open-wheel car. You do a three-day school. Where at? And this was uh, – where did I go? I think it was um, Daytona. Yeah. Actually, it was actually Daytona. So yeah. it's funny you say that because um, – this sounds silly, but – the skip car, Skippy car is my favorite car on iRacing, and I've often wondered. Really? Yeah. I just love it. It's so much fun. Um, it moves around a lot, too. It does move around a lot, and I don't know how realistic that is. But very realistic, yeah. It seems just like a car that just teach you so much. Like you said, it's pretty relatively easy as far as getting involved in. Um, and I remember being at Daytona and watching the schools happen on the infield course. They had like a small version of the infield course, and they just had cars going and going. And all these young guys getting in and out of them with their with their nice you know their new helmets and so you were the, one of those guys yeah you were, you were in there grinding away trying to get your so when you go to Skip Barber right and you show up for this three day school is it an automatic that you're going to get this uh, you know you're going to get your application into the series or how, what is the school about what is that process for so you have like a mix of people coming to these schools right, right? you got young kids coming out of go-karts that are supposed to be the new hot shoes and you've got 35 year olds that work their whole life just to save up enough money to come and do this school right you know so you've got a you got a range of people that are there and you got like 20 something year olds that maybe you know they're they're probably a a little too old to get into racing but they still believe they can do it um so there's a range of people uh but really it's just you know back then skip barber was all about if you want to drive a race car and you want to be taught how to drive a race car that's where you go. It's mm-hmm. pretty economical. I think it was, you know, twenty five hundred bucks maybe for a three day school, maybe three thousand uh, bucks. So it's still expensive, yeah. but in the grand scheme of everything, like you know, someone can can save up and afford that um, at some, maybe some point mm-hmm. in their life. So yeah, you go to school and they teach you the three day school. It's all the basics, and then if you you do well in that, then you go to the two day advanced school, 
And that's like the real race cars. You know, they put some wings on it. They give you the sequential gearbox. You have to qualify or something for that. I, I mean, don't like, think can anybody to, go to the t- two day school? I think you had you had to run the three day school and show that you were proficient enough to go to the two yeah. day. They could turn you down. They, though. I think they could. Yeah, yeah. if you were like, man, okay. this guy's really not good. Maybe yeah. he needs to go three day again one more time. <laughs> okay. There was cases okay. like that. So yeah, you run through the school, and then at that time it was like, you know, if you if you got through the two schools then you go race the regional championship and there was a couple of those it was like a south championship uh, what does the championship consist of um so it was like 10 races you'd go to daytona sebring moroso like all sorts of places in yeah. florida on the south championship are those companion races to major events like indycar and so forth um no it was uh, there was standalone really yeah you'd go there and they were they were standalone races you're and, the deal yeah we were skip barber racing yeah. was happening here, right you know come check it out yeah <laughs> are, are you continuing to have to fork over money though to continue to advance or are yeah. you still riding your twenty five hundred three thousand dollar entry no so yeah i mean it was still if you wanted to run the whole south championship the cars was, the cars were all prepared for you right yeah it's the, so they're running it that's why it was economical because yeah. it was a school you know this the scale of it was easier i think it was i mean it still probably cost 10 15 grand yeah. to run that whole championship did you feel like the cars were equally prepared no I, it, as best they could be, right? You know, these are older chassis. Was it random which car you were going to get per race? It was random, yeah. But then, you know, you start looking into, well, who are the mechanics, you know, and what mechanics are working on what, and do you have a mechanic buddy, and, you oh. know, who tests the cars? Yeah. Well, who's the test driver? You know, can I talk to the test driver? Which one did you like the most? What balance on the car did you like could the you most? Could you adjust anything on the cars No, yourself? other than brake bias. I think brake bias was, yeah. was manually adjustable. Um, but they were... Pr- I, I don't want to. No, no, no. They were pretty. It equal was a great series. Yeah, yeah, they did a good job. I mean, it, they were as equal as you could make yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. You know. So how did that go? How did that experience go? So my very first race. To go back to your question yeah. on that Wrecking. big wreck. Yeah. It's my first race. I went through the schools. <laughs> All right. I'm at I'm at Sebring. You know, the full course. Oh it's, my it's god. A pretty daunting yeah. course. Have you ever been to Sebring? It was very tough. Turn 17. I destroyed a Corvette there. Did you? Yes, I did. What corner? Uh, in the bridge, like uh, turn yeah. three. Yeah. Hit the. Yep. I backed into the bridge. That'll happen. Testing, yeah. Yeah, it'll yeah, happen. It'll wild. bite you that place. <laughs> That's what makes it fun. It's the bumping. damn tires, what man. What car were slick. you driving there? Me and Dad went to test the Corvettes to oh. get ready for Daytona, and they're like, you know, the tires are a little, eh, for a lap, take it easy. I mean, <laughs> I barely touched the throttle coming out of three, and it goes, and I feel like I'm going 30 mile an hour. Yep. I feel like I'm crawling, and the next thing I know, I feel like I'm going 100 mile an hour backwards, Yeah. and I hit that bridge, and I thought, okay, I've junked this thing. And they put it back together in 15 minutes. Oh, there you and they're go. They're like, here you go. And I'm like, me again? Uh, you sure? <laughs> I get to stay? Yeah. No, yeah. <laughs> they're keeping me. But anyhow, you, so you're at Turn Sebring. 17 for you. It's a very, very difficult place. So very difficult. Yeah. Very bumpy. Yeah. Um, very quick. Like, turn 17 is super fast. You know, you're entering off the back straight and, you know, hauling the mail into the corner. And then it, you go under a bridge there, too. There's a lot of bridges at Sebring. So it was my first race. In that first race, I just lost the car into turn 17 and pancaked it into the wall. And it was like my first really big wreck. And I just thought, you know what? Like in that moment, it, re- it really made me think, you know, why am I doing this? I don't know why, but that, that was the one wreck that sticks in my mind where it knocked my confidence. Mm. And I really thought like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know that I can do this for a living. Mm. I, you know, and, and that's when you're young, you start to think about that mm. at that point. Like, is this something I want to pursue? And am I good enough to do that? And that wreck completely knocked that confidence out of me. My dad was there. We had dinner that night. And I just remember him, again, the temperament, you know? He just really encouraged me to – I had a race the next day, too. It was a two-race two weekend. 
and this happened in that first race. And he just encouraged me to go out and, and you know, try again tomorrow, you know, not to let this set me back. And um, I, I remember that I remember that night so vividly to me. We, I mean, we were at dinner, and I was like, I just wanted to go home. I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't think I can. Yeah. Um, I, I can't believe how – to look at myself now and then to think back to that, I can't believe how little confidence I had. But, you know, him – being the right temperament and forced me to go the next day was the right thing. I ended up winning the next day. Wow. I won the race. All right. And so the contrast between those two days was a real inflection point in my career. Because from from that point on, when I won that race the next day, it was it was never a lack of confidence again, yeah. regardless of what happens. Mm. So I think it was a really important lesson for me to learn defeat or give yourself humility that, you know what, you're gonna make mistakes. And and sometimes in racing, that's half the battle is to have that confidence and humility that you know, it's okay to wreck the car. It's it's gonna happen. I mean, yeah. it's just gonna happen at some point. Professionals wreck all the time, so I think that was a really important lesson for me mentally to understand how to you know survive in racing. Yeah, I think that um, that was one of the things that unfortunately is it doesn't change about racing is a you know the highs and lows, and they will come one right after the other. And fortunately for you, the high was the second thing, you know, the, 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 the disappointment of the day before. But that was one thing that never changed. I don't care how, you know, even in the Cup Series, you would win. And then the next week could be one of the worst weekends where just nothing's going right. And literally running in the back of the pack with no understanding of why, how you could be so good and then so bad. But you know what he says is, is interesting because while he's talking about confidence, I mean, you guys, I don't care what you're racing. When you've lost your confidence, you can tell, just, just normal people can tell that you're not as fast, right? I mean, like, you, people don't, they slow down when they lose their confidence. How did you get it's your confidence everything. back? It's everything. Oh, you're ta- you said your dad, it's because your dad you got your confidence back, right? Yeah, 100%. In that moment, it was, it was through my father kind yeah. of channeling, you know, his energy um, and just his demeanor. That's what, but, you know, from that moment on, it kind of taught me how to, how to self-regulate that. Because it, it is everything. And, I mean, I'm a huge believer in that in sports in general too oh yeah i mean it's 100 you know, confidence I remember. is so critical and it's not a cockiness no i mean some people can be cocky about it but the the true belief in yourself the true belief yeah and the ability to work through multiple situations confidence is like at the cornerstone of anything when you're when you're peaking performance wise you know even if you're not a cocky person or individual inside you have that internal confidence that's driving it it's just it's so critical in so many different ways in racing. I mean, you can dive into the different ways confidence um, helps you, but it's it is like the most important thing to I think kick butt in racing. I remember early in Dale's career, he used to say, "You know, I'm the best driver out there," and and then he would say, "I you got to think that if you're going to go out there and race, you, you got to think that you are the best one out there." And he 100%. was you you were you were winning you know four five six races a year when we went through 2009 and 10 at Hendrick. You weren't saying that anymore. And, man, I'm, I remember his confidence was so low <laughs> yeah. that it – I mean, like, it, it was almost, uh, like, depression low, right? And, man, I was like – that's when I saw the stark difference between, man, where's that I'm the best driver out here? And now it's like, man, you're just – you know, I remember the race where they, they kept you out uh, and, and uh, let you – you know, you were leading laps. Lance kept you out leading laps at Charlotte, but – not pitting with everybody out. And you're like, what is this what it's come down to? You know, you're just trying to keep me out here on old ass tires. I'm not going to hold them off. And I'm like, man, what I'd give to have that confidence back. Cause you know, that right there is, is everything right. So it's uh, critical. Yeah. yeah. And I've had those moments too. Like, you know, in, it, it does, it coming, it comes and goes. Um, I had it in the beginning of my, my IndyCar career where, 
you know, it wasn't the confidence knock that I had in that very first Skip Barber race. It wasn't like that. Yeah. It wasn't a, it was more just like a depression where, you know, it was my first year, it was my rookie year in IndyCar and you know, nothing went right. And we were a small team, just didn't have the budget, the testing. I was, it was just me. I had no teammates, no real idea on how to drive the car, or what to look at to drive the car well. Um, so I felt like on an island and I, I more so got depressed. That was like the lack of confidence was yeah. just, you know, feeling defeated, you know, more than it. it wasn't that, oh, I don't, I don't believe in myself anymore. It's just, you know, why am I doing this? I, I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can make enough of a difference to, to warrant being here. That was mm. more what it, what it felt like, but you can go through those different moments. It's, you know, it's, it's really a team sport when you look at confidence, uh, especially at the top level, you know, it, everyone's got to buy into it and you, you're feeding off every individual in that team. And if there's like a broken link somewhere, then it can, it can affect the whole group. And when that starts to happen, it's just it, nothing good comes out of that. Yeah. Picture this. It's blazing hot outside and you need to head to work. You get into your car and turn on the AC to get the cold air pumping as soon as possible, but it doesn't work. Instead, blowing hot air out of your vents and directly into your face. No, your car doesn't hate you. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the air conditioning system, and there's an easy all-in-one solution that will restore your cold air in no time. There's no need to go to the shop and pay lots of money when you can save time and money recharging yourself with AC Pro Recharge Kits. AC Pro Recharge Kits make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience. And the AC Pro app offers clear, vehicle-specific instructions to help you get the job done in less than 10 minutes. So pick up an AC Pro Recharge Kit at any store selling auto products and confidently restore your car's cold air yourself today. Be a pro with AC Pro. So you mentioned earlier that you were overseas racing. So how did you end up over there? So Skip Barber went through that whole process, and then um, throughout racing in Skip Barber, I got selected for this scholarship. It was called the Team USA Scholarship. It was created by a guy named Jeremy Shaw. He was a he was a writer. He's actually English, and he created this this USA Scholarship. And he wanted to bring young Americans uh, over to 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 Europe, mostly England, um, to race in that environment and showcase American talent. And this was started, I think, the very first year was 1990, or maybe it was 91. I probably don't have my years right. Um, and they went over with Jimmy Vassar the very first year uh, from, yeah, it was an IndyCar driver, Jimmy. They've had, you know, multiple guys. So Almondinger was a winner of it one year. And it's a really good scholarship, you know, that's funded by individuals within racing. And they send these, you know, they send a kid or two kids over and they, they race in some premier racing championships over in Europe. For me, it was the Formula Ford Festival um, that they sent us to go race in. That's like a huge deal in England. If you're, you were Ayrton Senna, Michael Schumacher back in the 70s, 80s, like, that's where you went to go prove yourself in Europe as a, as a junior uh, driver before you you know moved up the ranks to go to Formula One. So the Formula Ford Festival was a big deal. No American had ever won it, and when I went over there, I won I won the festival. I was the first American. I'm still the only American that's ever won that race, which is kind of shocking. At Brands Hatch. At Brands Hatch. Yep. So cool. One the of, full course or the Indy course? Indy course. Man, I love the Indy course. Do you? It's so fun. I like the full course really? more. Yeah. I mean, I run it and enjoy it, but the Indy course is so short track. Yeah, you know, I love short track racing, right? Same. And uh, that to me is kind of such a short course. It's it, it begs for you know you to be aggressive. And I used to watch a lot of British touring car 
racing. Really? Yeah, because they raced. <laughs> I would never have they guessed knocked that. The, they knocked the mirrors off, right? They yep. run hard and beat yep. and bang. And I got to be a big fan of like Jason Plato and Matt yeah. Neal and those guys. When Plato was dominating, right. probably. Yeah. yeah. And Matt was an independent back, you know, running with the big boys. It was fun. But um, so I fell in love with uh, Brands Hatch. Have you ever gone never there? Never been. No. Oh, you got to go. A, it looks like an awesome place. Yeah. And I'm with you. I love short track racing, has actually become probably my favorite form of racing. So I respect that on the indie side. But for brands, the full GP course, if you're a road course racer, it's like one of the coolest circuits oh, in the yeah. world. So, uh, yeah, I love that place. It was, uh, But that was a big win in, in oh, yeah. brands, and, and then it kept me over in Europe. So when I won that festival, um, did really well with the scholarship. That was kind of my door into racing in England and you know, potentially going to Formula One, which is, which is what I wanted to do initially. I was really captivated by Formula One. Um, and wanted to try and make it over there. So what were you, what, you you've talked about? <laughs> I can't even imagine like even thinking that I'd ever get a shot at anything like that. And how were you able to? You know, everyone wants to be a Formula One race car driver over in Europe, particularly. You know, the the it's like musicians in Nashville. Like, and you know, mm -hmm. everybody in Europe wants to race Formula One. All the guys that are racing anything over there want to get to that opportunity, right? And you really had a legit avenue. You know, totally with yeah. your success. Was there a moment where you were like, you could could you believe your reality that you were you were heading in that direction? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I had to pinch myself at moments. It's so cool what we were doing. You know, when we went over the for the festival, it was like a three week journey. It was probably the most fun I've ever had in racing. Was was going over there. Uh, I went with another driver, Connor Daly. Uh, he was my teammate, <laughs> and we literally spent. We spent three weeks together. We went. We were in Ireland, England. We we lived with this Irish family, the Dempsey family. They were the ones that ran our Formula Fords, and the Formula Fords are the coolest thing. It's like putting a Skip Barber car on steroids. Um, they move around a lot. Super fun to drive. You know, very good for car control and learning vehicle dynamics, especially mechanical yeah. grip. And um, so, yeah, we lived with this Irish family for three years in the in the truck, and uh, just had a blast just had a blast testing the car racing it and so yeah in those moments you think wow this is so cool like we got selected for this really neat scholarship and maybe we can go to formula one one day you're you're been, you've been with your dad your whole life right and he's now probably not he's you know obviously not in europe with you right yeah pretty i mean they came over they came to, over. to watch the race but that was yeah that was probably the first moment where it was just you it was us on you own. know yeah it was me and it was whoever i'm with and we're trying to go racing. And that's kind of how they Jeremy wanted it, too. It's it pretty cool about the scholarship. Yeah. The whole idea was to put you out of your comfort zone. I know. Where are you uncomfortable? No, not at all. I mean, it, we were having the time of our lives. I was 17. You know, <laughs> Connor was 16. How did you stay focused? I, I, I loved racing. For me, it was easy. The environment was... was was a good safe environment and perfect no 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 distractions <laughs> no i mean you know in in i'm just Ireland, trying to imagine you know i couldn't imagine me at 17 in europe well you i would have torpedoed the hell out of that yeah the funniest the funniest <laughs> thing people know connor daly now he was the complete opposite what oh yeah oh yeah well, the connor daly you see today i'm like he was the opposite when he was in Europe. He was like the most. He was quiet. He was. He was. He played video games. He was nerdy. Super cool what guy. Happened? One of my best friends. I know what happened to him. I, I he well. So we, he went back to Europe after yeah. that two years later, and then he came back home to America, and he was like, <laughs> "I was like, what happened, man? You're like, you're like an international superstar now. You're not the Connor <laughs> Daly I yeah. knew." Um, but yeah, we were. You know, we were just nerdy little kids that was 16 17 all we cared about was racing yeah. so you know any of the irish influence of 
let's go to the pub and get some pints. Uh, that yeah. wasn't a problem. How were you able to get up to speed at all these unique tracks that you'd never seen in your life? That I, I think that was one of my skill sets. So when I when I did the festival right up to speed right away. Connor was too. Connor was really on it as well. But that was one of our skill sets. We could rock up and just be quick mm -hmm. right away. And a lot of people were mm -hmm. like, what the heck are they doing? Are they are they cheating with these American drivers? Because they hadn't really seen that before from a lot of others. But yeah, it was part of the skill set. And then I stayed over in Europe after that in 2009, ran the full British Formula Ford Championship. Coolest year of my life, just traveling all over England and, and Ireland. And I had to learn all those tracks. There was probably you know 20 different tracks that I went to and didn't know anything about them. And that was the skill set was to like be on it right away and, you know, learn them super fast and be up to speed with the locals pretty much. Mm -hmm. So what was it like racing and being the only, you know, being pretty much the only American in the series? Like, are you, you know, when you, you see guys out on the racetrack, you treat them a little bit differently. One of the, th one of the things that's unique about IndyCar now, the, the, it's multinational. I never even thought about that until I went to the Indy 500 and I'm like, yeah. oh my God, the personalities, it's like this smorgasbord of all it's kinds. It's surprising. Yes, it's a little bit shocking because I'm so used to NASCAR, man. Yeah, he's from Indiana. He's from California. Yeah, everybody's from, most people are from the United States. And, um, and you kind of, you kind of know what you're going to get from everybody. Yeah. When you went to Europe, did was it tough getting that respect? Was it easy to get? Were they, was, was everybody welcoming you with open arms? Come on in, have some fun. Yeah, I think for the most part, it was really welcoming. Um, so you can kind of think of the British Formula Ford was much like NASCAR. It was mostly British people. Uh -huh. You're either English or Irish or Scottish. Um, you're British. And so I was really the only outsider. There wasn't a lot of Europeans. There was, I think there was like one Dutch guy. Actually, there was. He was my teammate who was Dutch. But I, I liked it because, you know, people, people were very friendly, warm and opening and welcoming. My team, for the most part, like I had the, the best, sweetest team from England. They had this, you know, really cool shop that was on their farm, literally in a barn in their uh, farm. Old school. Oh, so yeah. cool. It's literally like, you know, short track racing in North America, yeah. uh, but in England oh. uh, with Formula Fords. That's how, you know, because they don't really do late models and stuff over there, but sure. Formula Ford racing is what they do. So it was so much fun, but I, I was for sure the underdog. You know, people don't want right. to see the American come in no. and race against all the British and kick their butt. But I, I loved that. I was like, this is so cool. Everyone mm. does not want to see me succeed, probably. And that makes me really want to succeed. It just gives you extra motivation. Yeah. You know, you're the, you're the outsider in that whole group. So, your 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 eyeball is on your eyes are on Formula One. How do you end up getting back to the states? So I think Europe and the path to Formula One is probably the most probably the most political environment I've ever seen. I mean, Formula One is like just this Goliath of political. It's just politically difficult. You know, yeah. you've got like high, high money people in that sport. I mean, you're talking two, three hundred million dollars for a team with these manufacturers, Mercedes, Ferrari. I mean, that's serious money. You've got, you know, oil money from the Middle East and you've got these large corporations in Europe. I, I've just never seen such a politically intrinsic sport where it was like you have to have the right connection. You have to have the right manager. You have to be on the right team. You have to know exactly what engines you need to have for this series. It's so cutthroat and difficult. I don't even know how you explain that to a young racer nowadays. Mm. And it's only gotten worse. Yeah. It was even easier back when I was doing it. Now it's got even harder. So you start looking at this, and, and the British Formula Ford was the easiest part because there was none of that. It was just like short track racing in North America. Like if you have a good shop and a good team, 
you guys can go compete with whoever, right? It didn't matter. Like, you can do a good job. But then when you get through British Formula 4 and you're like, all right, let's go up the rung in the ladder. Let's get to the next level in Europe and then maybe get a shot to Formula 1. That's where it gets tough. You start really going to Europe and you're like Formula 3 or, you know, GP2 at the time. Now it's F2. Those are really political and trying to get just the money and the right team and the right manager to even get an opportunity to maybe talk to a Formula 1 team is like, the most difficult thing ever. So I ran out of funding for the most part. I, ran, I went and ran GP3 in 2010, which is the year after British Formula Ford. And I just we just got the opportunity to put together. I was supposed to run Formula 3 in England, and I had an investor that was going to invest in me, literally backed out at the last minute. I was sitting in the car ready to test it for the first time. Check doesn't clear. Oh, no. That guy goes away and like disappears off the face of the planet, which I really needed in, in order to run the car. Um, so then I got this opportunity last moment, run GP3. We ran all over Europe following Formula One. Worst year of my career, definitely out of money after that. That was the end of 2010. I thought my, was, my career was over. My dad had to come back over to England, help me pack up, bring me back to America. And I literally thought, I was like, we're out of money, probably all done. My, my, my dreams of going to Formula One have just crashed and right. died. So, you know, this is over. So we came back to America and then the story continues after that. What's the rest of it? So uh, okay, so <laughs> so when I come back to America, so you're framing this up. I've had, I think a lot of drivers can relate to that feeling of I think this is it. Yeah, I, that was that was it. I'm done. What am I gonna do next? I gotta I gotta do a normal thing, right? I gotta what job am I gonna do? Right. Yeah. You got a family business to to maybe go get involved in. Um, well, and the family business was now. You know, they, they had sold it oh. in 2008, so it wasn't around anymore. Oh, so. And, I mean, I really, w- at that time, I was thinking, you know, maybe I go to college, you know? Maybe I get a degree in something. Yeah. Um, oh, Lord. I don't know what degree I want to get, you know? I, I it's, it's like you get so focused on... Not that that's a bad thing, Mike. No, no, no. no. Yeah. I go, but if, you're, if that's your starting point at 18 to now... Okay, so I have to go get You're a degree. Eight, Where no, do I you think start? I'm, I'm just—I'm almost twenty. I'm nineteen. You're twenty. At this yeah, time. That, that, yeah. Usually, you've started thinking about that before then. So yeah, it would be a rough transition to have to uh, start considering. It's just a hard pill to swallow. It's you hard, know? It, right, right, you, right, right. You, you kind of go your whole career, um, which you know, for me, at that point, was like three, four years. Yeah, I think the only the part that would be most difficult for me is, and I think this listeners should contemplate this a second, is when. When people, when if you're an aspiring race car driver running short tracks around here or whatever, you run into these obstacles, you run into these dead ends, but it's here, and, and, and it you're, is, is, you know, people, people that lose their rides or, or when their opportunities drop, they, they show it up at the track, they keep their helmet, and they, they, they keep persevering out of sight, out of mind, right? But you can always you know, be at the next race and make yourself available. Yeah. Right. And it's, it, but when you're in Europe, right. And you're in your, your deal ends or you've ran into that roadblock. You, you don't, you don't bring that resume back. Like no one, no one over here knows really what you've been doing over there. Maybe some of the important people do, and that's probably the rest of your story. But I'm just, I can't imagine how uh, fearful you must've been of your future because if you have those roadblocks, stumbling blocks at 20 years old here, uh, you, you kind of can recover, right? But when it ends there overseas and you've got to come all the way back to the States, you have, you're not coming back to a foundation. You're not coming back to anything, right? Yeah, it's a good point. You put all that sweat equity there. over there. And when, that's, when you leave that continent, right, you come back here, you've got to really start from scratch, right? Yeah, no, 100%. I, it's, that was really the case. But 
exactly to what you alluded to, some of the important people that you know pay attention to kind of the overall picture, they still keep tabs and they see what's going on. And they know of some of these guys that maybe went and did those these forays. So that's what led to 2011. I got a, an amazing opportunity. The, the, I mean, Indy Lights was so expensive. So I'm Indy Lights, the feeder series to Indy right. Car. You know, this is like running an Xfinity Cup. It's so expensive to go run Indy Lights. I mean, it was nearly a million bucks to run that championship. And, you know, I mean, we didn't have enough money to run the year before. We didn't have any money. So I don't know, I don't know how you're going to go conjure up a million bucks, you know, in yeah. a couple months to go run Indy Lights. So I got basically given a lifeline by Sam Schmidt, who owned one of the most successful Indy Lights teams. They, they were the cream of the crop at the time. They call you up? And they called me up, and they, he basically did a deal for me. He invested in my career, too. What did he say? He said, you know, what was it that you had done that they were so interested in? Well, they had been keeping an eye on it, and, you know, we had some other people around us and keeping them in the loop, and basically Sam was like, you know, we'll, we'll take a flyer on you. And he was, he was pretty savvy in Indy Lights. Like, he actually had legitimate sponsorship on some of his cars. Okay. One of his cars was fully funded. So he could pick and choose the driver. He could he pick and choose a driver. That car was taken. <laughs> The funded car. But then he had this other car that was like maybe going to be funded. And so he he basically invested into my career and said, you know, I want some you know future of you um, and I'll put you in the car. And we still had to pay a little bit of money, mm -hmm. but we found the money and it was like, all right, we can put up some of it. No way we can get all of this, but we can we can get some of it. And we didn't run with we, we didn't even pay for for crash damage insurance, which is a big no, no in Indy Lights. You wreck a car in Indy Lights. It's like one hundred and fifty thousand dollar hit just like that. And so you and took that chance. We took that. We had to. Yeah. It was that we couldn't do anything else. So I got in the car. We raced that championship. I won the very first race out, and I went up winning the championship. The, then I get an opportunity in IndyCar from. So it. when you go out and you win the first race, do you, do you carry the concern with the crash damage into that first race? Or are you thinking not at all. your dad's thinking about that? Right? No, it was on but dad. Yeah, not you. Yeah. yeah. And so you go out and you win, Sam is what's the conversation like then at that point? Like, hey. No, it's on. I think, you know, for those guys, they didn't expect, you know, they, they wanted to give me the opportunity if they didn't feel I was going to be a contributor and be good for their yeah, ecosystem. Sure. But I, didn't, I don't think they expected me to be sort of the, the leader of the team. That was supposed to be the other car, the fully Who's funded the car. Guy? It was Esteban Guerrieri, super great driver. He came from Europe too, but he was a lot closer to Formula to One than me. You. I mean, he was like, yeah. he's literally just under it and could have been hired to go to Formula One like the next year. So he's like fully up the ladder. I'm like still at the bottom of the ladder. So they're expecting this guy to probably lead the charge for the team. And I win the first race out, been the quickest in testing. Like I'm ready to rock. So I think that dynamic uh, shifted very quickly and they were probably surprised by that. But yeah, the burden of the, you know, the year and the potential of what could go wrong. Went away. It, no, it didn't necessarily. I mean, it wasn't there in the beginning. And he, that's how my dad operated, though. Yeah. And he instilled that into me. He was like, "Look, if something goes wrong and sideways, we'll figure it out." Yeah. And that's what you have to do, right? If it does go sideways, you just figure out a plan to 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 work it out. So we went into that year just with, you know, just an open mind, trying to make it happen. And and the good thing for me was I knew I was stepping into the best seat on the grid. I mean, it was literally it was this was the championship winning team. I'm gonna have the best teammates around me to learn from and to to observe every weekend. Like I, I, it was like a catbird seat opportunity. Was that your first year on the oval? Yeah, first year in oval racing. What did you think about oval racing? I just loved it. What I was loved it? it. I mean, so y'all ran. I know you run Indy. So we ran Iowa. Iowa. Iowa, or I should say, Indy was my first one for the Freedom 100. Yeah, which was so cool. You're pretty much wide open, right? Yeah, you're in any lights car at that time. Always wide that, open. Yeah, we're wide open. What about at Iowa? 
No, I was lifting. You wearing the what tires was, out. I mean, so your first experience in oval is it's such a crazy discipline. You know, we see it all the time when uh, IndyCar guys come to NASCAR or NASCAR like with Jimmy. Yeah. I mean, it, the disciplines don't even compare. I don't think. Um, watching, totally different. Watching how you know each one each one kind of struggles to understand the two. So you go to oval. I know the other guys are also experiencing this same challenge of racing at an oval, but tires wearing out. You're lifting. What was your thoughts like? So Indy was like one part of the equation. You know, it was pretty flat out. You know, as the tires wear out, that gets a little bit harder. You know, much probably like Daytona or something. Mm-hmm. You know, it's flat out, but it's not easy, easy to keep it stuck, yeah. right? And that's how it was. You start learning. It was all about learning drafting, you know, positioning the car, where you want to be, two laps to go, where do you want to be, uh, one lap to go, where you want to be. So that was the whole indie game. Super cool. But then you go to a place like Iowa, totally different. I mean, this is like oval racing. Yeah. You're lifting. You're trying to understand to conserve the tires. You know, how, how does the car feel into the corner, middle, exit, off? Um, and I just I fell in love with it. And mm. short track racing now is my favorite form of racing. I yeah. wish we could race 10 short tracks with Indy cars. <laughs> and it, it's not really possible because our cars can't go to every short track. We sure. can't go to Bristol, no. unfortunately. I wish we could. Yeah, I don't even know how they go around in Richmond and places like that. So like, Richmond that and places bonkers. like, yeah, Iowa, Richmond, it's super fast. But um, with the old surfaces, it works a lot better because we still, we'll drop, you know, we'll probably drop two, three seconds, almost four seconds at Richmond, it'll be about four second drop. So it's a lot of performance loss as the tires wear out. And you're really you're starting to break even with an Indy car, yeah. which is crazy. Um, but yeah, it's it's the most fun I've ever had. I fell in love with it. It's a completely different art to race in a road course. I'd never experienced that in my life, um, and I didn't realize how much I was going to love it until until I did it. Yeah, I know you've met, been able to get to know Jimmy a little bit. Let's touch on him for a second. I know you've been able to get to know him. Super awesome dude. I've the told, best. Yeah, he is such a great guy. Yep. Explain to people why it's so difficult for him. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just want to st- start by saying I'm a huge Jimmy Johnson fan. He was one of my guys growing up. I'm someone that loves watching dominance. So when Jimmy was crushing everybody in Cup, <laughs> when he had that run, I was like the biggest Jimmy Johnson fan. I would tune in to watch Jimmy crush people. <laughs> so I've got a huge respect for for uh, for Mr. Seven Time. What he's doing is it, it's so difficult to describe to people how how challenging it is. I mean, Jimmy has no background in open wheel racing whatsoever. I mean, he's completely, you know, dirt track racer to cup racing, stock car racing. That is that, I mean, it'd be like taking me with no stock car racing background and literally put me in a cup car Mm. tomorrow and saying, go run Daytona, go run Richmond, go run Atlanta. It would be so difficult for me to understand how to figure that out. And he's not had a lot of testing. You know, it's it's difficult nowadays to get up to speed. Um, but, yeah, it's all about him trying to understand downforce is probably the biggest thing that he's got to learn. What is the problem with that? So, you know, with an Indy car, we're producing around 5,000 pounds of downforce at 200 miles an hour just from a load standpoint. And, you know, I bet a stock car's at 200, you know, fully loaded up on a road course is probably – 2200 pounds maybe 2500 at most so it's half of what an indy car mm-hmm. produces and also the indy car is half the weight so dynamically the way the car feels the you know how aggressive you need to be on the brake pedal how aggressive you need to turn the car in how quickly the car reacts jimmy's just not used to that he's used to a car that reacts a lot slower the the way you talk to it the way it talks to you is like night and day difference to how the indy car talks mm-hmm. and so he's i think jimmy's had to like completely speed up his process Whereas like an IndyCar guy going to a stock car, they got to slow it down. They got to go, okay, let me let me let things happen and talk to the car differently 
and, and let it all happen. Whereas in IndyCar, it's, it's just happening. It's literally happening and you've just got to react. So it's not that one's harder than the other. It's not even, it's not even trying to start that conversation. They're sure. just totally different. different. Yeah. So that's the challenge he's working through. And I just, he's getting it. Which do you is see really, these moments of brilliance or do you see that talent in him shine through yeah, in these little spaces? In the races. Yeah. It's happening in the races. Um, and I think he's just, he's got more reps. You know, as soon as he hits the racing part of the weekend and he's in a rhythm, you can see, yeah, he can drive that car pretty much at the limit. But it's the short spurts. It's, you know, getting out of practice, doing two laps or going into qualifying, having nail one lap. Like mm. he doesn't have the confidence yet to just go do it. Yeah. But in the race when he's like, hey, we got a bunch of time. Let's run 70 laps. You can see he's like pretty much on the limit, yeah. you know, and he knows how to drive the car to that limit. So I think once he gets, you know, his head around it, once he gets more confidence, he's he's going to very much be in, in the pack running with it. You know, not as egregious as uh, jumping in a new car, but you guys are about to go do a new track, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in Nashville. Yeah. Like, so, okay. So apply the same type of learning curve. How long will it take you guys to adapt to a completely new place First off, okay, I, go that's ahead. a great I, – I saw um, – <laughs> I don't remember who did – somebody went on an old Papyrus IndyCar game yes. that was, you know, 20 years old and did a – they made a track out of a program called Sandbox of what the, the, the track's going to look like. But anyhow, I'm sure you've seen a better rendition than that. What is this track going to look like? What's it going to remind you of? Uh, everybody's talking about driving over the bridge. Yeah. What kind of arrow issues does that present? When you arch over, you know, going over hills, I know there's a, probably a breaking zone really shortly after the bridge, so you're not yep. going to be like, you know, you're not going to, I don't know what speed you'll be getting to the middle yeah. as you crest that bridge, but what what is that track going to remind people of? So the tough thing about Nashville is typically on street courses, you have the thing fully loaded up with downforce, right? You got the wings cranked up, they're maxed. I mean, it's the most downforce the car will produce because that's typically the quickest. You know, you're only probably doing 170 miles, 175 miles an hour on the straight on a street course um, just because it's short. You know, you don't have long straights. It's faster to get through the corners. Mm -hmm. Nashville will propose the question of do we trim the cars out, which is not typical on a street course for us because those straightaways that you're talking about with the bridge, they're, they're super long. Oh. So it actually looks like maybe we should trim the cars out um, just because the, the trade-off speed-wise seems like it may be worth it. You know, what, how long you're on the straights versus in the corners is starting to propose that question. Um, so I think that's going to be interesting about Nashville. The bridge is by far the coolest part of it. I mean, it's so cool that we're racing over Korean vets, um, which is what, what the bridge is called. It's going to be the perfect backdrop for Nashville. Nashville also has one of the coolest skylines. You know, yeah. I, yes. I know it very well yeah. growing up. And that, I, if they get the helicopter shot right, which they, they better do, um, you're going to see the cars you know, flying over that bridge literally right in front of the, the skyline of the city. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look aesthetically probably cooler than anything this have year. you been down there uh to the track and as they're putting it together yeah yeah i've been i've been there working with the track designer tony Cotman and indycar i just want to make sure we're thinking through everything yeah and what it, are some of the obstacles well you know it's a new circuit so you got to look at runoffs you got to look at how the pit lanes configured uh i think just even things that people don't think of is like how does the pit lane exit onto the racetrack and how how are the cars coming off pit lane interacting with the cars on the track and in, in indycar it's kind of a big deal you know on a on an oval track in nascar it's not it's not as much of a you know it's not as much of something to think about because mm -hmm. it's you coming off the apron there's a lot of room on the back stretch it's kind of simple 
normally in IndyCar racing, when you come off pit road, the way that it interacts with the car on the track can a lot of times be really tight and really awkward. So you don't want to create problems between that. So there's little things that we just want to make sure, you know, the event has the best opportunity to showcase well off off the jump. Sure. Um, there's going to be problems. It's inevitable. It's a new street circuit. There's going to be things we just couldn't forecast that we got to fix. But I think if we can reduce the amount of issues we have, it's going to help the longevity of the event, you know, yeah. and, and the health of it. Are the all the other drivers involved? Uh, not everybody, but you know, I think as long as you've got a couple key people in there that are you know, giving good advice. You know, certainly anyone's advice is welcome. Sure. Everyone's running it on the simulator, whether you're a Honda or a Chevy guy. So anyone that runs it on the sim and feels the track and goes, hey, I got to just just think about this. I have one point I'd like to say. They're going to take all that into consideration. But it was really important for me. The I wanted to sit down with them, make sure they got some of the details correct. It's wide enough where you can make it wide. You know, thinking about where we could have a traffic jam situation or you know, where they need safety trucks, just to make sure if there's a track blockage that you can recover those yeah. cars quickly. Because on a street course, if you have a track blockage, you don't want to be sitting there 25 minutes trying to recover the track. It's not good for the fans. It's not good for the driver. Sure. So little stuff like that just needs to be tidied up and made sure. So when you drive over the bridge, is there anything challenging about that from a aero standpoint or... Not typically. As it's, they, as it's it kind of crests that heel. I'm sure y'all have all those have multiple scenarios like that in in the series that are similar. But I keep uh, popping into my mind the long straightaway at Le Mans and the car going the car, car going back lift. Yeah. yeah, lifting up. Um, no, it shouldn't be too bad. We're making enough downforce that it should yeah. stay stuck. The one section of bridge going over the bridge initially into the downtown area. It's very bumpy off the transition of the bridge, and then that leads right into a brake zone. So I think the stability of the car is going to be really tough there, mm-hmm. you know, because you're going to want the, you want the car as low as possible. You know, it's just dynamically the best, but you, I think you're going to have to raise the cars up a bit more in Nashville because it's so bumpy, and the bridge section is very bumpy. So you're going to get some porpoising with the car. So trying to figure out how to how to you know keep that car as low as possible while also not crashing yeah. the bumps off of the bridge into the brake zone, that's that's going to be a challenge. What will they physically need to do to the bridge to be able to race across it? Um, so they've they've done a really good job of the, the transition from the bridge to the asphalt road. They've repaved all those sections. I, I heard that the track itself took upon that um, expense to repave and patch. You know, I know you're part of the ownership group here, Dave. <laughs> I just watch my Twitter feed, man. I'm, I'm just, just going to say this, though. I think <laughs> what's been most impressive is there's not really been a lot of expense spared yeah. when it comes to making sure the track's right. Yeah. And it's really, really important on a street course that you get those details right. So paving that section, you know, some places may not do that. They may be like, well, right. whatever. The cars will it. get used to it. Yeah. yeah, deal with it. But when you, what I was wondering is, like, the bridge is not a racetrack, right? But no. now to make it a racetrack, what needs to happen to the bridge? Is there barriers all the way across well, you definitely need sides, barriers. Right? There's already rails and things. Yep. So not enough. You can put you a little fi- more. Is there, is there fencing on both sides? I mean, to keep you guys, you know, from going off into the... Yeah, the good thing is, like, there's a raised-up sidewalk, right? On, yeah. on the bridge. Okay. So the barrier sits on top of that. So the height of the barrier pretty is tall. Yeah, it's pretty tall. It's probably five foot. And then you have the catch fencing all the way up. And so there's catch fencing all the way across the bridge. Yeah, all the way across. And it's the number one question I've got is, you know, hey, you're going over a bridge. Like, what happens if someone, uh, you know, hits another car and they go into you the go, water? Yeah. And I just tell people, I'm like, well, there's divers. You know? oh, We're good. I, t- I said that like, to, I said yeah, that to my like wife. Monaco. I said that to my yeah. wife. She hated that. Yeah. She did not like that response. <laughs> she's she's right, like, by the way. It's like Monaco back in the 70s. Exactly, man. yeah. <laughs> I was like, look, if we go into the water, they'll they'll come rescue yeah. us. Don't worry about it. It's fine. Oh, God. 
It's making me nervous right now just hearing you say it's that. It's absolutely, you know, not a probable outcome, but the fact that there's a, it's a bridge. chance. I mean, the, yeah, we should, it should be discussed. It should be discussed. It's, yeah, it should, it's entered the chat. Yeah. Let's at least acknowledge it, right? <laughs> yeah. Hey, you, uh, so you've got six races left yeah. this season. All right. You got some momentum. You've been, you've been running good. You got your win. You're fourth in points. Is Nashville, is, is it considered like, I mean, I would assume it's a wild card a bit because you've never been there. Is that a good thing? Is this a is this a benefit to you to have a wild card race, or is it a bit of a of a you have to make up ground? You've got Scott Dixon in front of you. You got Alex. You got Pato. Is this a good thing to be going I, to a I brand like new it. course? I love it because I, I feel like I can get on top of a new new track quicker than others, and that's a skill set some guys have, right? Some guys, you know, they may take a little while to to find their footing, but very good. Other guys are just on it right away. I love a new course. I always feel like I can learn it. It goes back to racing in England. Mm -hmm. You know, I had to learn 20 new courses, you know, right off the jump. And so I, I love a new track. I think it provides a good opportunity for us to be ahead of everyone quicker, especially with limited practice time. So that will help us, I think. But look, you're never guaranteed. You can always have a good weekend going in IndyCar and it can be, sure. you know, taken away at the last moment in the race. I, the hometown, like, does that matter does that is that still a real thing are you going to have like tons of family in it at the event will will it be unique in any way because it's in nashville it's new for me i've never had a the pressure of a hometown event will that be there i think it will you? i think it will i mean i'm already feeling that now because i'm you know trying to represent the the event as best as i can right because I, I want the event to succeed for sure. not just for nashville but for indycar but there's already that hometown pressure of hey you're you know, you're our guy. You're supposed to come in here and do good, right? You're gonna you're gonna be just fine, right? Yeah. So that's gonna be present. Um, but you know, the way I always thought of it was every event's important. This one's no different. So I just, you know, I think of it like any other race. I'm, that's what I'm gonna try to do. We talked about you being an American overseas, but and 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 I mentioned how multinational IndyCar is, and I think, um, you know, it's a, it's that's an amazing attribute to that series. What is it like being an American in that series? You know, yeah, you're racing in the United States. You're racing in Nashville at your home track. But you're, the series has been dominated by by guys that are that are not American, right? Yeah. I think that, you know, an American star in, in IndyCar is a great thing. I'm sure you feel the same way. How do you feel being that guy? I, you know, it's funny. For me, what I like about IndyCar racing is that we have the best of the best from yeah. around the world. I think that's what makes it special. I think it's also what makes it special being an American in the sport is that, you know, we've got guys from New Zealand, Australia, England, uh, Europe, Japan, everywhere. You know, they're the best of the best. Brazil. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I'm part of that group that's representing all yeah. the countries, and my country happens to be America. I take a lot of pride in that, but it's also what I like about the championship is that you, you have these guys from different backgrounds that are all coming together to try and, you know, showcase the best from around the world. Yeah, so when I went to – I talk, we talked about this before, Mike, but when I – so I'm watching IndyCar my whole life, right, and I just, you know, I don't know why I didn't – I'd never really been to a race before, and I go to the Indy 500 and met a lot of the drivers. Uh, fortunate for me, I got a chance to really – get a good glimpse at what that series is like and I was just shocked by the by the dynamic personalities hmm. you know and NASCAR is a great series great sport we've got great personalities IndyCar they're from all corners of the world and while that's an amazing thing for a fan what kind of challenges does that present for you because and I've talked to some other racers about this 
like blocking, for example, mm. you got a different opinion than the guy from maybe Brazil and the guy from Australia on what that is, what's a good block, what's a bad block, all those etiquette, all that driving etiquette. I'm sure in road, in, you know, in road racing and, and it, it all kind of blends together, but there's got to be a time when those opinions sort of clash and become difficult because you're you think it was a uh, you think this was a fair decision on the track and this other guy thinks that that's not a good move right when do these things sort of come to a hit yeah i think it's really the cultural differences right like you know what's normal in one culture is different right. in, in america and so i think the you know like someone from france is going to feel differently than someone from america on some type of move and what's the right etiquette or not um i think for the most part you know, everyone kind of, you know, we kind of have this international code of, yeah. you know, what's, how should professional open wheel racing be conducted, right? And in IndyCar, we have a certain way of doing that. Um, so everyone that comes over here, we all kind of get on board that same page because the established drivers are going to set that yes. tone and that's what it's going to be. You know, someone, someone coming in may feel differently about that in the beginning, but eventually, you know, you're, you're around the, the, you know, the, the predominant players long enough. That's, you're going to have to get used to that. So when you get all of these guys and you have that international code understanding and you take all of you to an oval, and a lot of guys maybe aren't having a lot of oval experience, are the expectations the same? As Do you use that same code? Does it change a little bit? That's, that's actually where it's probably the most different is, you know, the road and street course stuff, I feel like everyone kind of understands that, especially if you're from, you know, Europe or wherever. Right. Like you kind of get how, how it should work and how we should drive together. When it comes to oval racing, much like me, most of these guys, they don't know anything about oval racing when they come over. Um, and it's not Indy Lights. It's not a junior car. This is like the real deal, full-blown Indy car, Indy 500, 33 cars around you. It's serious stuff. And they just, I think what happens a lot of times is they don't understand the respect that's needed at those speeds yeah. and that style of racing. You know, it, it really takes both parties to interact whether you're being aggressive or not like it takes both parties to cooperate in order for it to go okay uh you can't just muscle your way through something especially on an oval so that's probably the most difficult thing for anyone new coming into the sport is trying to trying to understand that etiquette and the risk factor there is on on an oval versus a road or street course yeah what's the international etiquette code for settling disagreements after a race <laughs> that's the cult that's where the cultures are, are different you know <laughs> yeah. you, you have a little different opinion on how we handle this yeah i mean if you're willpower you may fight someone you know i mean he uh, scraps dude. he doesn't want to fight he doesn't it's just part <laughs> really of his, it's he's, part of his history you know it's his else. history it's he, he he's a lover i'm glad you said willpower <laughs> because you know what we really uh, may i won't speak for you i'll speak for me when you were in that iRacing IndyCar race oh god that uh, was so much fun and, right and oh, man, we all race in michigan <laughs> or something and will powers in it and i and we're listening to the radio and I was like, wow, Will Power's a little whiny, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> he, can, he gets a little chip. He is my favorite person on the planet. He's got to be. I don't even know how to explain that guy to people. Like He's just we so loved, different. We yeah. loved him. When he was on our show, we just had – and boy, but he likes to scrap. And, man, yeah. he doesn't really – I don't know if he thinks he's stealthy with his feelings, but he isn't at I, all. And he, I find Australians very hard to explain, explain, but also some of my favorite people. Yeah. They're, they're, they're my favorite. I have another Australian teammate. Scotty McLaughlin, yeah. he's another one of my favorite people now. He's from Australia. Well, no, he's actually a Kiwi, but a lot of people think he's Australian. Sure. He's from New Zealand. Yeah, that's delicate. Um, but he's <laughs> lived in Australia most of his life, so I just think he's Australian. He's going to kill me after he, he is. is. <laughs> um, uh, but Will, 
you know, what a lot of people don't know about Will is he's like probably the most kind-hearted person sure. I've ever met. Yeah. He has such a big heart, but he's so emotional and, and he like he's so passionate. Yeah. So we've we've even had our run-ins a couple times where he's like, I mean, we've gotten in like yelling matches, and I'm like, I think this guy's gonna punch me for, and I don't know why. I don't. <laughs> and then literally 20 minutes later, he'll come back and be like, man, I'm so sorry, like you know. And we're like best friends again. It's totally fine. Yeah. Um, so there's different cultures for sure, and the way you interact. But at the end of the day, we all we all find a way to get along, yeah. which is good. You know, one of the telling things I remember, like watching the Indy 500 this year, when Elio won, like the first people that I saw, and he hugged a lot of people, but the first people, I, like Will Power was right there. And I, like all of Elio's, you know, Penske teammates were the first to congratulate him. And that really, to me, spoke a lot to the culture of not just your, you know, your driver, you know, fraternity, but also, you know, that the, uh, the captain is built within the company and everything else, and everybody was so, so generally happy for Elio. As is, you know, the, you know, IndyCar fans, because he's just a likable guy, right? Yeah, I, I think it's the most surprising thing for drivers. I, I don't have the experience on the NASCAR side, so I don't know what that camaraderie is like. But, you know, we're, look, we're all uber competitive people, right? I mean, I want to, same thing with my teammates. I tell this to Scott. I'm like, look, I want to, I'm going to do everything I can to beat you on the track, even though we're, you know, friendly off of it. But what, what drivers, notice when they come to IndyCar is they're really surprised by the camaraderie off the track. Yeah. And they, they, they actually, they don't understand how it exists. Mm -hmm. They're like, I don't know how we can all be so cordial and friendly. We don't have to be best friends, but we're all friendly enough where we can hang out in the bus lot or, you know, have a barbecue together or whatever it is and still be as fierce as we are on the track. And I don't know if that's just unique to IndyCar, but we're all, we're really good with each other. Like there's a great camaraderie from, from everybody. So when Elio won the fourth, like everyone was genuinely happy to see Elio do that. It was a big deal for for the series and for him. And, you know, yeah, I wanted to win the race, but it was, it was cool to see Elio do that. Yeah. Yeah, that is an interesting thing about what um, – and I don't know that IndyCar was always that way. I think it's just – it's kind of like a – it's it's a trend, and it ha all the all the moons have to align. And right now, you guys do have that sort of camaraderie. You can see it in social media, where you guys are you know genuinely enjoy being around each other away from the racetrack. And I think that's a good thing. You know, we we talked about it in NASCAR for years that it was maybe a bad thing that all of us were in the bus lot together. Yeah. And we you know when we would get into in a disagreement on the track, we would we would text each other and be you know. And that would be that, right? There weren't any more scraps and fighting at the hotel room or the hotel lobby, or it was just you know the ho the the bus lot and us being together all the time sort of normalized us and 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 took away a lot of that. Really, sort of, yeah, yeah, it took away some of those rough edges, but made made us less likely to you know draw out these feuds, you know, into week and month long deals. How is it now? Because it's it honestly seems like from the outside that that's gotten better too. More like the IndyCar world, yeah. where everyone you know you see these friendships like a Chase and a Ryan sure. or whatever. Yeah. I mean, everyone seems more friendly nowadays. I think so, um, and I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing that are because that you can see those guys also race each other harder than yeah. anyone else on the racetrack. You know, you race your friend, your buddy is harder, harder than anyone else, mm -hmm. and you actually put him in more compromising situations than you would anyone else, right? Because he's your buddy. He's going to get over it, right? And so at least that's the way I race some of my friends. <laughs> I don't know. I think NASCAR drivers, if you really – if they took a lie detector test, I don't think any of them really like each other. I don't know that that – yeah, I don't know that you're wrong there. And, and I like that. I like it that way. I don't, I don't – I think that's important, but I yeah. don't know that the feuds last the way they used to. Yeah. You know, because everybody's in this bus lot together, and they, they can't afford to – 
just you know be at each other's throats for for months on end. It, it's a hard thing to do, you know. At the end of the day, I think Will has said this, and I, I do agree with it because I'm one of these people that. I can be friends with everybody. It's no problem. Like, I'm going to tell you straight up from the beginning, I'm going to do everything I can to beat you on the track. I'm not going to treat you any differently if we're friends. Um, but some people, they just can't do that. When, when, when stuff happens on the track, they, they can't get over it. Mm -hmm. And it just changes their dynamic off the track with each other. Uh, I, I've, I've definitely known a lot of people that struggle with that. So I could see that in the NASCAR world. It seems more likely there yes. that they really struggle with certain things that happen. They, they won't get over yeah. it. Um, but IndyCar, yeah, I don't know. It's just a maybe. It is the moons aligning. It's yeah. it's a weird dynamic. Everyone's at least cordial, which is yeah. kind of cool. And that'll go away and come back again and go away and come back. Yeah. I think I believe in cycles. Your wife was a Disney princess. Yeah, that's so, a fact. Well, you know, I got two little girls getting ready to take them to Disney. Uh, they're gonna meet the princesses in in the in the castle. But what wh does <laughs> what was her life like as a princess? Before you met her, I, I don't, you know, was she still a princess when y'all met? Well, she's my princess for sure. Well, of course, you know? I'm um, yes, but a Disney, obviously. Uh, yeah, Disney. It's a weird story. It's kind of like the scooter story. It's like, well, you know, how do you meet a Dis Disney princess? And I didn't meet her away from Disney and just happen to learn that she was a princess. Like I met her at Disney when she was a princess. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's how I met my wife. Like she was literally Ariel. Dude. And I was like, Ooh. <laughs> I'm like, who is this Ariel? Like, and it, it Joseph was looking for he, mermaids. What are you doing at Disneyland? <laughs> well, I was there with my family. Okay, you're you know, there with was, your family. How old are you in this moment? Twenty, twenty-one. All right, and you 21? see, you see, uh, you see the princess, right? I see the princess, and you know, there's a lot of princesses around. Right. So why are you picking this one out? Of, I mean, she was the one. I'm like, look, I've seen Cinderella, I've seen Jasmine. I'm like, but I don't know who this Ariel person is. <laughs> and it's not like I had a thing for redheads or something. It wasn't that. It was just what like, was who her is this reaction? person? Is this uh, common for her to have people uh, coming up to her and going, hey, uh, you'd be interested in going on a date? I mean, it is a weird story. Seems like a thing. Seems did like that would, seems like you, that would be awful. Off Wait, limits. You didn't hit on her while she was in uniform. I mean, I did. I did. That did. is God, creep. So <laughs> let, me, let me tell you the story. It's a weird story. Um, so we're at Disney. We were at literally Cinderella's castle. Mm -hmm. they, you can have dinner there. Yes, you can. We were having dinner. You'll probably have dinner there with yes. your little girls. I've already. You got it Been scheduled up. Process, yeah. yeah. All, you, oh, all yeah. the so at this dinner, all the princesses are there. Yep. You know, and uh, so we're eating dinner, and before this dinner happened, I we had you like meet Cinderella, and I'm like, oh, this, you know, I was kind of giving her a hard time, just you know, just playing around, like just you're trying to get them off off balance a little bit because they're they're in character, yes. like they are performing all the time when you see them. So you know, maybe it wasn't the nice thing. I was just trying to get her off balance a little bit. She I'm, sure not that, appreciate I'm sure that. that never happens to them. Yeah, I, all right? the time. They're like, <laughs> I'm like one in a million that's like yeah. giving them a hard time. Well, how many 21-year-old single guys are going to din dinner at Disney's, you know, uh, castle? It's a lot more than you think. Really? Uh, a lot more than you think. It's I, yeah. like the guy that goes Not to for that reason. I yeah, mean, it's, I'm not there alone. I'm literally there with seven with other family members. Okay. It's my mom, my okay. dad, my sister, I, my cousin. I had this visualized completely no, wrong. It's then. not like, hey, table for one, and I'm meeting Cinderella. <laughs> that would be really awkward. Hey, Ariel. What you doing later? Yeah, like what is this? <laughs> that would be creepy. Um, so, anyways, this this Cinderella did not appreciate this. She put me in my place, like super witty, and I'm like, yeah, oh, I deserve it probably. Um, so, anyways, then we go up to our table. We're sitting down. We're having dinner, and apparently, like the Cinderella told all the other princesses, they're like, "Look out for this guy. He's you know, he's, he's a tough one, or whatever." <laughs> and my so Ashley comes over. She's she's the Ariel, and she starts you know giving me. 
giving me a hard time too. And so I just give it right back to her. And I'm like trying to, I'm asking her where Prince is. I'm like, where's Eric? You know, he must be on a long, long journey. Oh, man. Journey far, far away. <laughs> and uh, she's like just struggling. I, she, she, she tells the story differently. I think she was struggling to stay in character. Um, but I was, I was trying to catch her off balance too. But she absolutely captivated me. I was like, out of all the, I was like, who? I don't care that you're a what princess you right now. I'm like, who is this girl? So I had to figure out who she was and where she was. And that's an impossible task. Yes. You're not just going to leave Disney and go, well, you know, I like that one. Uh, let me let me, <laughs> let me, me see how I can find out her, where her contact is, and maybe I can take her out on a date. Like, it's impossible. They have security for these reasons. Um, so I went back to my hotel, and I'm like, man, I wonder, I, I really want to find that girl. Like, I just got to find her details and, you know, see if I can message her or send her a letter, you know, something cheesy. And um, couldn't find her. Literally at midnight, two hours later, I get an email in my inbox. It's from Ariel. Shut up. I swear to you. I swear to you. She emails me as like this really cute message. And How she did she signed get it. your email? That's what I said. I was like, I was like, whoa. First off, I got an email from her. I already know her name now. Now I know who she is. Her name's Ashley. All right. And so I found her online, found out. Yeah, I was Sweet. like. Sweet. I don't have to call her Ariel anymore. Super creepy of me. But yeah, she emails me and I'm like, she must have gotten my email because I made the reservation. I made the reservation for our oh. family. And I'm like, she must have wanted to figure out who I was. I'm like, this is a done deal. She, wa she was curious who I was when I was curious who she was. Mutual. Mutual. I'm like, this is a done deal. This is easy now. I got her information. Anyway, I sent her an email back. She's kind of coy with each other. It's like literally taking a day for each email to go. It's like <laughs> sending letters. You know, we're all trying to be cool. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to email too quick. Oh, yeah, you yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> it was for like two weeks. You don't want to get, give her the wrong impression or anything. No, 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 no. no. Hey, I, hit I, on her I thought you were interesting, but, you know, let me take a couple of days before I email <laughs> I, you back. Right. <laughs> we're both doing this, right? <laughs> trying to be cool with each other. Oh, yeah. We literally do it for two weeks, and after the two weeks, I'm like, this is like, this is the woman of my dreams. I'm like, who is this lady? And so I... I I was like, I have to come down. Please let me come down and take you out on a date. And so I convinced her to let me do that. I come back down to Orlando, take her out on a date. Um, and then I literally learn on that date that she's moving to Japan. Oh, my. Like in 30 days. It's already done. She's got a contract. She's going to go work for Disney in Japan. I'm like, what the heck? I was like, you're the woman of my dreams. I like want to marry you, and you're going to leave the country? So, yeah, then I had to go to Japan for the, the next year, and then the rest is history. Oh, but so yeah, she went. goes to Japan. She goes to Japan. I had to travel that whole year. How many times did you go to Japan this Three year? Three times. Oh, my yeah. gosh. Yeah. It was the best time of my life. I love Japan. I wish I could. I, you were going to go to Tokyo yeah. for the Olympics, weren't you? Yeah. I was going to try and weasel my way over there because I'd love to go back to Japan. It's one of my favorite countries in the world. Anyways, we dated while she was in Japan for 14 months, and then the rest is history after that. That's pretty incredible. It's it crazy. is incredible. You want to know the kicker on that story? So it wasn't that she got my email off the reservation, and I didn't learn this until like three weeks afterwards, right? It was my father. My father paid the bill, all right, for the dinner, and he put my he put my email address down on the bill and gave it to the the waitress and said, "Can you please give this to the area?" The this princess. Is, this is he saw it. He oh yeah no everyone at the yeah. table knew everyone was like I'm so infatuated by who this Ariel is. He gave it to the waitress. The waitress gave it to to Ashley. I think this is probably illegal at Disney. So yeah, hopefully gotta be. this waitress doesn't get you know fired one day. But, yeah, so my dad ended up being my wingman. I mean, what a guy. You know, he gave me my career. He, made, he helped me meet my wife. Like Now I know why he gives you so much confidence. I hate it, but I have to give him credit because he did make it happen. Unbelievable. Joey happen. Newgarden, man. He's, like the, he's my guy. There you my go. Gosh. Well, that's pretty incredible. That's a good way to end this conversation, I think. I don't know. Where yeah. do we go from next? I, mean, I don't know. Let's not even try. Well, Joseph, we 
We had a t- we got a ton of notes on you. Maybe. <laughs> we did, but uh, get we probably didn't get through half. We did of it. not, no. and that's the great thing about this podcast is that you don't just come on here once. Dale, when are you coming to Nashville? Uh, I just went like a couple days ago. No, but when are you going? Are you coming for the race weekend or no? I don't know. I have to work that weekend. You got to work that weekend. Y'all are at Watkins Glen yeah, or something. Walk- I got to work the broadcast at. Uh, I sent you an email. I'll be down. I got, in- I got a ping pong tournament Thursday night. That's Bla- right. Blaney's coming. Logano's oh coming. I'm just saying, if you're open, oh, I'm this not, is your celebrity it's for charity. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. for charity. I'll yeah. come. I'm not. I'm not gonna play. Ping you can. You can, I can put. Just hang out. You can get a ringer. You can hire an Olympian. Yes, you I'll can pro- be your I teammate. Just, I'll just. I'll just hang out. It's right. You're not. You don't you want to play. play. You gotta come. You play. You guys play, and I'll. I'll. You could be a designated hitter. I'll mingle. I'll mingle amongst the crowd and say, you know, say say hey to everybody. What, All right. What is the date of that? It's uh, August fifth. So it's Thursday. It's the only way. So Thursday, us, the only way for us to do it because yeah, you know Thursday. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, all the drivers are busy. Right. So we're doing it Thursday night okay. at six p.m. Yeah. Okay. We're Where gonna have at? tickets for it too. Where? We got hundred tickets. It's at Pins Mechanical downtown Nashville. It's for Serious Fun Children's Network. So people can buy tickets. People can buy tickets. We've never done this before. It's hundred tickets on sale. We're trying to raise an extra ten thousand dollars. Serious Fun Children's Network. It's part of Victory Junction. Is actually in that network. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah. Paul Newman's charity that he started in the eighties. It's a really cool group. They do great. Great things for all these kids. How do you get a country. ticket? So if you go to my social media, there's a link to this ticket um, okay. uh, site where you can where you can purchase a ticket. And there's only a hundred, so I don't know how many are left. But okay. if there's still some left, you can buy a ticket and come to the event. All Maybe right. Dale will be there. He's, I'm guessing you're probably not, but you may be I, there. I, if I'm, I mean, if I come to the race that weekend, it's definitely got to be Thursday or maybe Friday. But I got to be in the, at the Glen to do the broadcast for the Xfinity race on Saturday and Sunday. I get it. I get it. I'll be standing. You're down. a busy man. I I'll get be it. down in the or the bus stop. But I, that's where I'll be broadcasting oh, radio man. style. Oh yeah, yeah, that's different. But uh, man, Hovis, he left. He had to go. He had to go. TT. He had to go. TT. He he said, I mean, I've met you before, and I know I know you're a pretty incredible person, man. But he he said you'd be an amazing interview, and you certainly were. People are going to love to hear this podcast. It's been a blast talking to you and getting to know you, and I'm excited about your future. Thanks for sharing everything with us and uh, being so transparent. Um, people are going to be thrilled to hear it, man. So I hope you had a good time. Man, it's been a total honor. Yeah. I was so nervous to come in here. You know, you guys are like royalty. So. We're, nervous. <laughs> we're, we're nervous, too. But uh, I appreciate it, though. Yeah. This is a, it was a complete honor to be here. Uh, such a big fan of, of you guys and especially you, Dale. Well, I appreciate so, that. Thank you for everything you do for motorsports and, and you know, well, we're a huge here. We're a huge fan of yours. Uh, we'll be cheering you on going forward. Yeah. I, we, your grandfather. Ping Pong Hall of Fame. We didn't even get, we didn't to, even that. get to that. We didn't so, get to it. There's, so there's Joseph, a lot we could have dug into. Joseph Newgarden, we're going to get him back on the podcast, folks, because he's got a lot more to his story, and hopefully we'll be talking about some more success in your motorsports career, uh, maybe a win in, in Nashville for the first race. So good luck going forward, man. Thanks, guys. All Thank right. You. Joseph Newgarden on the Dale Jr. Download. And we are live, Dale. Hey everybody, it's Dale Jr. for the Dale Jr. Download, and this is the Ask Jr. part of the show. We're excited for you guys to tune in and join us. Leah, are you ready? This is my favorite part of the show. Absolutely, I'm ready. All right. Always. Well, she's on YouTube right now, and she's getting a bunch of the questions ready that you guys have sent in to Xfinity Racing on Twitter. So, if you're ready, Leah, let's go. Yeah, let's kick it off. We had a couple of Olympic-themed questions for you, Dale. Uh, first one from Brian Wiltshire. What are your favorite Olympic events to watch? Uh... You know, I, I think um, track and field's always fun. Racing, any kind of any kind of comp, any kind of racing style competition, 
is fun for me. Uh, the relay, uh, passing the baton, uh, how how difficult that must be and tricky that must be. The longer uh, running events, I like the sprints too, but um, the endurance ones, really seeing somebody push their body uh, to insane lengths. The swimming stuff, same thing. Racing, I enjoy those probably the most. All the traditional ones, you know, that you when you were when you were in school and looking at books and and all the traditional. Um, track and field style events are always fun. Fun to watch those people do that. Uh, if you could be in one Olympic sport, either winter or summer, what sport would you be in? That's from Ryan. Yeah, we had a little conversation about this on the on the uh, NBC broadcast in New Hampshire, and, and they said, pick one. Pick one you'd be. And I'm thinking archery, I guess, because I like the bow hunt. So, um, shoot, you know, trying to be the best in the world at, at shooting a bow would be probably a fun challenge. And it was pretty interesting what, you know, what everybody thought of. But I think archery is a reasonable consideration. I'm not athletic, so it's not going to be any kind of a running and jumping kind of thing for me or or swimming. I'm not going to be good at any of that. But uh, I can do it, not fast. One more Olympic question. This is from Higgy, who's watching live on YouTube. Uh, Do you have an Olympian past or present that you would like to meet? Oh, my gosh. Any gold medal winner, I mean, any kind of – any kind of medalist is always fun to meet. We always would have those come through the drivers' meetings, at, you know, and and join, uh, come to races, uh, and they'll sit up there. So at the drivers' meeting, you got all the people lined up that they're going to introduce, the celebrities uh, that are there for the races, and they'll be there with their gold medals. And to think about where that gold medal came from and the journey that it's been on, and that it is now in their possession and belongs to them is just a it's a it's a fun it's a fun thing to be in the same room with i'll say that to imagine the work i think that those people put into their lives and the commitment they make uh, to be the best they can be and then they're they're pushed out in front of the world you know on this stage to compete and and succeed and only one only a few get to uh, enjoy uh, success uh, but anyhow, uh, I've had a chance to meet a bunch of gold medalists and medalists from the United States over the years, and it's always amazing. Next question coming from Thor Redstone. What do you do with all the dirt from lost speedways that you put in your jars? Where does that go? We got a uh, off, yeah in our little office there. When you see the intro to the to the show, um, some of them are in that little office right there. But Matt's got Matthew's got some, and his uh, some of them are more particular to other individuals in the, the in the production crew so maybe they have their own jar it's from certain tracks but um half think, my crap's at your house still okay yeah. <laughs> we have a lot of stuff at that office where we shoot the intro, intro of me walking into the gas station yeah uh next question coming from three laps down what manufacturer do you see coming into the sport next and what team do you think would be the one to switch over oh i don't even know um there's been a lot of spe- speculation about Honda, but I, I don't. Even, I've I've not heard anything. I've not heard any kind of rumblings about who that could be. That might come into the sport. So, um, and you know, I don't really know what team would be, you know, their choice or what team might be in in a great position to kind of do what Gibbs did with Toyota or what Ray Evernham did with Dodge. Um, be that sort of first team that gets them off the ground. That's an undertaking. It's a great op- it's a great position to be in I think for a manu- for a race team to have that right that initial support right out of the gate but you got to understand too 
that when you take on that relationship and that responsibility, that there will be those growing pains to get that manufacturer to be competitive over the years. We saw that, how difficult that was for Toyota before they were able to um, kind of, you know, get a foundation there in the Cup Series and start winning a lot of races. But um, it took them a while. They had a lot of success in the Truck Series before they started winning, you know, races in the Xfinity and the Cup Series. Next question from Ryan Cliver. How excited or nervous are you to race at Richmond? That'll be here before you know it. Ooh, I'm scared. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm nervous. I'm scared. I ain't been in a car. I don't know how it's going to go. So it's always uh, an absolute unknown, and uh, it'll feel completely um, – I mean, I, I my heart will be beating out of my chest the minute before I get in the car – so I'm a, I don't think there's any practice, so we'll just hit the ground running, right? You know, drop the green flag and start racing. You know, hopefully I don't make any mistakes or, or uh, you know, not being in the car and getting out on the racetrack with the rest of the competitors, kind of finding my place and not making a mistake will be really critical in the first, you know, 40 laps of the race till I can settle in and things start to make sense. And I, you want to become part of the car right that that's the hope that you and the car kind of work together as one and it feels very comfortable um, but that won't happen right away so hopefully I can get through that you know that first stage in the race uh, without any real mistakes and issues that'll that'll be on my mind is just not you know making sure that because as you get older I think it becomes harder to know where things are around you um, when you drive a race car every single week, you don't even need to look in the mirror to know where that guy is behind you or beside you. You don't even need to look. It's just you, it's a sense. It's a sense that you're. It's automatic, and you you can drive right out the windshield the whole race, only relying on the information from your spotter and everything else without even looking around to see where the cars are behind you and beside you. But I think getting back in the car for the first time in a long time, that won't be so natural. So I hope I don't make any mistakes, run anybody and myself in the fence or anything like that. Uh, from Ryan Talley, uh, hey, Dell Jr., are you a dry rub guy or sauce oh. guy when it comes to barbecuing? Yeah, either one. I mean, I had never had dry rub ribs until I went to Rendezvous. We've talked about them on this podcast before. They actually sent me a box uh, a couple weeks ago because we mentioned them on the podcast. Um, <laughs> Yeah. That's cool. And uh, so they ship rendezvous in Memphis. They ship your ribs if you want to get some. And uh, they do a great job of getting you getting you a great product. Um, you wouldn't think, I don't know, I don't know that a lot of people would, would consider having barbecue shipped to them, uh, particularly ribs and things like that, and brisket. That's all, you know, you just heat, and heat it and eat it. But uh, the rendezvous ribs ship really well. And it's, I think, because it's a dry rub, so when you get the... When you get the rib, either you're eating it there or at home, um, you just you can heat it up on the grill or heat it up in the oven or whatever, but then you just cover it. They give you the rub and you just cover it with the dry rub and eat it, right? Just like that. And um, I'd never had dry rub barbecue until I went to Rendezvous, and I'm like, so you just eat it like this? that You don't cover it in sauce? Where, you know, but it is so good. Where is that? Uh, Memphis, Rendezvous oh. in Memphis. Um, but I do love sauces you know and i love i love all types uh when it comes to barbecue sauce um i'm probably more into the hotter stuff uh you know spicy hot styles uh but sweet and hot i like a lot i'm not into the vinegar based north carolina style sauces 
I'll eat it. And I don't mind mustard-based uh, um, slaw and things like that. It's actually, I do enjoy that uh, particular type of slaw, but um, when it comes to sauces, I'm more of a Midwestern-style barbecue. But that, I'd like to talk, I love to talk about barbecue because it's uh, – I just love eating it. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, now yeah. we're all hungry. All right. Yeah, we are. Thanks. Great question. Got us all hungry. Well, it's over. My favorite part of the show. There needs to be some kind of sad music, I think. Don't you feel like there should be some sad music playing in the background Is that we get to this point? That's what's going on in your head, right? Yes. Sad music. Well, <laughs> the Ash Junior segment it ends so quickly. I love it. We get people on here that are engaged and working. Uh, you know, it's 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 live. Yeah. You know, we do this podcast. We record it, edit it, and then put it out. Uh, that moment of engaging with the live audience is really fun. Yeah, I'm glad it is. You know, it goes by uh, a little too fast for us when it's your favorite subject. But, hey, it's it's fast because it's Xfinity fast, guys. You understand that, right? Well, Xfinity X-Fi is more than just fast. It's also reliable and it's powerful. And that means everybody can do more of what they love with that faster Internet. Yeah, listen, stay connected with the Wi-Fi coverage. It delivers the speed your devices need. We use it. Everybody at this table uses it, and so uh, it's good. Uh, we wouldn't tell you otherwise. Remember, everyone, keep your questions coming, too. It's Dale's favorite segment. <laughs> Send your Ask Junior questions to at Xfinity Racing on Twitter. All right. Thank you, Xfinity. Proud premier partner of NASCAR. Last call. All right. It's time for Last Call. This is episode 350. We're just going to call it the Small Blocks Chevy episode. Get it, oh, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Bad joke. All right. The Olympics, they're going on, and I'm getting to do some pretty cool stuff. Uh, I'm able to chat with some of the athletes, uh, and we're calling it the Dale Jr.'s Olympic Chats. The first person that I got to speak with was Perry Baker, a USA rugby player. Um, this Thursday, I'm going to be interviewing Tyler Justice Page. He's a 25-year-old. And he's, uh, he's, he's over there for uh, Team America Samoa, and he's in sailing. So he also works for Junior Motorsports. Yeah. I'm going to be interviewing him Thursday morning. And uh, these little chats are shared throughout NBC's handles, our own handles as well, uh, with Dirty Mo Media, my own personal handles. Uh, and it's great for me. I really loved it. Talking to Perry was a bunch of fun. Um, guys, from, we, we, we went, we kind of connected with athletes who mentioned that they were nascar fans mm. all right and so uh we we might not even discuss nascar in the conversation but that's kind of how we we got connected to a few of these athletes anyways uh perry was great uh and it's just interesting to me to to wonder you know what their experience is like flying yeah. all, all being all the way on the other side of the world right competing uh, for your country and 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 meeting all kinds of people from all over the world from different countries uh, I just can't even imagine what I remember going to the Winter Olympics with you, Mike, and it was a once in a lifetime sort of experience to see those athletes playing, uh, some of the best in the world doing it, and we got to watch them uh, trying to, you know, when they're trying to achieve their greatest achievements, right, in the Olympics. They they work all their lives for these opportunities, and we were able to witness it in person. So. Pretty amazing to be able to talk to them about that experience and see what their 
feelings are. Can't wait to talk to Tyler. He's awesome. He's going to be great. This guy, uh, we have loved talking to this kid. He is so enthusiastic and just like a bundle of joy. And, man, he has given us some insights into sailing. Uh, I can't wait to watch. I can't wait to hear what you and him talk about. That's, uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. All right. Well, there's no door bumper clear. Uh, they're enjoying the Olympic break by not working, uh, which is total BS. The podcast is on break, and uh, they're not really competing in the games or anything, so I don't understand that. But we have a new podcast that debuted. And, Mike, I want you to explain. Glorious, white-knuckled, God-fearing, spun out and half-turned-over racing stories. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we went for the longest name. I think we got it. Glorious, white-knuckled, God-fearing, spun out and half-turned-over racing stories is a podcast that we have, we're trying some stuff new. It's not a talk show. It's an editorialized style uh, uh, podcast uh, narrated and, and, and written by our friend Rick Houston, who uh, people know from uh, The Scene. Uh, longtime reporter for the scene, also does the scene podcast, does a great job, and we so love good. Rick. And so, uh, we, you know, Rick and I got together and we said, like, let's just try to create something new. Uh, you know, he's got an archive of just fantastic audio, just audio, like of, of his interviews over the years. And man, do we have some stories lined up and, and things that I think, you know, maybe you've heard about it, but you haven't heard in this detail. And so, yeah. Glorious White Knuckle Godfearing spun out and have turned over racing stories. I still got to read it because I can't remember all that. That's yeah. a lot. But uh, we're excited about it, and uh, that'll be the first of several podcasts that we launch uh, here in the next several months. All right. Keep your eyes peeled for Dirty Mo Media's social media handles and announcements coming uh, of all the new podcasts that we have uh, developing in our studio. It's going to be a pretty awesome season, I think. Well, that was a great show. I appreciate Joseph coming by. We're excited about the Nashville Grand Prix. Uh, it's great for Joseph to come shed a little light on that and uh, tell us a little bit by himself. Yeah, man. Super guy. Yeah, fantastic. All right, buddy. All right, man. Well, y'all have a great one. We'll see you next week. This is Dale Jr. This has been a badass reading. You're listening to Dirty Mo Radio. The Dale Jr. Download. It was made by Badass Dirty Mo Media. Dirty Mo.